You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. Hi guys, it's Brandon, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption City Church, and you're about to listen to one of our sermon exhortations, and we are so stoked that you're going to be with us for that encounter with the God of the universe. Now, our one ask every single time someone's getting ready to lean into the Word of God is that we were really all prepare to be sermon participators and not sermon evaluators. And what that means is we want to invite you to, yes, test all things by the Word of God, holding fast to what's true, but we really do want you to kind of open your heart and soften your mind and prepare for God to do a work in your life. And so we're going to spend the next hour or so looking at the Word of God faithfully, and the hope and the expectation is that it doesn't fall on deaf ears, but that it leads to transformative action within your life. That's going to be our hope. That's going to be our aim. Join with me as we do that now. Grace and peace. Important times in our church to the Bible we will search. If you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, let's open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, and we're going to be all up in this text in just a little bit. And, and today, folks, I'm radically, radically focused on leading our church, as well as those of you who are tracking with us and joining us um, on this journey across the bridge from a recent sermon that I just preached titled, The Called Verses the crowd. And, and in that sermon, we looked with great circumspection at Mark chapter 3, if you remember, verse 17 through 19, where we explored the clear contrast between two groups of people. And we learned that all of us, every single one of us, are most definitely in one of these two groups of people. And so right up front in that sermon um, I, that I preached, I mentioned one very important question for us all to answer right from the beginning, and it was this. Which group are you in? And so I try to shine the brightest light possible on the starting, startling reality that somehow and in some way, this large crowd of people in, in Mark chapter 3 actually believed with all of their heart that they were following Jesus, folks, but in reality, they weren't. Not at all. And, and then I juxtapose a, a, a significantly smaller group of, of people. It was a small group of men, and, and, and these individuals were referred to in the text as, as the called. And, and these people actually experienced what it truly meant to walk and to follow Jesus. And, and the big idea that we took away from this sermon was that the crowd saw Jesus as a means to an end, whereas the called saw Jesus as as they're in. In other words, the crowd saw Jesus and, and they sought him because they wanted to get things from him and they wanted to receive things from him, folks. They, they wanted Jesus' stuff, whether that was healing from stuff or deliverance from stuff or opportunity for stuff or to gain more stuff. Jesus was a means towards getting more stuff and desirable desirable things. And, and finally, we learned that it's dangerously easy to fall into the rhythm where you call yourself a Christian and you kind of create this whole picture of Christianity where you merely use Jesus as a means to get to all these different multitudes of good things in your life. And we talked about how dangerous that trap can be. Now, now the called, if you remember this, the called saw Jesus as their end, right? Like, like that's, that's different. Okay, so what the Bible 
Bible is communicating is that these men, these, these disciples were primarily drawn to Jesus himself, folks. Like, it's not what Jesus could do for them. It was literally the relationship that Jesus was providing to them. That's, that's what made it so different. Okay, you see, the ultimate message of the Bible regarding Jesus is not predicated. Remember this? It's not predicated on what we might receive from Jesus, but rather that Jesus is in himself the gift. He's the gift. Folks, all other blessings that, that come from Jesus and out from him, their peripheral footnotes to the book-sized reward our King Jesus is when we actually have him in our lives. He's our main treasure. Now, now earlier, I said that we wanted to build a, a bridge from the called versus crowd um, sermon, right? But I didn't say what we're building this bridge to yet, okay? So, so let's talk about that, because today we're going to march to the other side of that bridge from, from that sermon into our new series today titled Redemptive Christianity, Practicing the Saving Presence of God in our lives. And, and this series is going to be all about moving our relationship with Jesus from an informational one, folks, to a relational one. It's going to be all about moving our relationship with Jesus from a transactional relationship with Jesus into a Christ-infused practical one with our heavenly and our King Jesus. It's going to be all about moving away from spiritual foundations that are largely built upon Christian found, um, traditions, if I'm being honest, to new foundations that are actually based upon the Word of God. Because let me be clear to you, you and I have absolutely no shot, no shot at embodying the called life and avoiding the disposition of the crowd if we don't practice being in the presence of God, because that's what actually saves folks. That's what saves, namely being in the presence of God. That's what literally set the called apart from the crowd, because we are living in a day and in an age of American Christianity where being with Jesus is honestly becoming increasingly difficult and unattractive and terribly and truly misunderstood, not only because there are so many things that pull us away from him, but even more dangerously, we can't distinguish from within ourselves the difference between God's word and Christian traditions anymore. And that's scary. And what's so sad is that there are so many people who claim Christianity that don't even care to actually get to know their God. And so we struggle to understand the difference between our hopes and God's promises. Like we, 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 get un we can't really untangle the difference between God's standards for us and God's expectations for, what is that? Standards versus expectation. Like, what does that mean? We got to think about that. We have no category at all for the difference between baseline obedience and heartfelt devotion to our God. And ultimately, folks, we can't decide between heaven or earth as our ultimate Folks, honestly, as our ultimate prize. And, and all of this, all of it has directly affected our ability to be with God, to be in a real relationship with God that's, that's intimate and transformational in how we experience it, both within the normalcy of life and also in the heightened spiritual encounters that God has set before us to have with him. So, so being numb and being blocked and being uninterested that has unfortunately become our Christian song in today's age that we're living in. 
And for the wanderer and the seeker and and the curious, trying to find Jesus in a post-Christian world has become massively confusing at best. But folks, at its worst, it's just downright unattractive, particularly because the church has increasingly taken on the heart and the ethos of the culture. Instead of, listen, check with me, instead of us gladly being who we are with confidence in our distinctives that makes us distinctly Christian, which by the way was the very thing, think about the original church in Acts, it was being distinctly different. That's what attracted people to Jesus and the faith in the church. Instead of leaning into the fact that we're distinct different and, and, and being different in how we love and being different in how we give and how we respond, we, we're now insecure. We're insecure as God's people and we're unlanded in our distinctions that makes us Christian. And subconsciously, folks, we're always trying to fit into culture as much as possible. All you have to do is look to our Christian music, look to how we set things up and our everyday approaches to life to see that we try to fit into the culture instead of inviting the culture into an attractive relationship with Jesus that looks different. Okay, but the great danger has also followed upon those who have been attached to Jesus's stuff their whole life. And I mean it because many Christians are following a prescription plan, believing they will <laughs> they will be made well and that everything's going to go well and they're going to be with Jesus and they have no idea that they're on the wrong prescription plan the whole time. Like, like that's tough. And let me tell you, there's absolutely nothing worse than a cancer patient thinking they're taking cancer pills to get well, only to find out the whole time they were taking allergy medication. Man, that's, that's a sobering reality. So whether it's fasting or prayer or Sabbath or giving or sacrificing or loving or obeying as according to what God tells us in his word, listen, long-time Christians Mature Christians, ones who have been walking for a real long season, truly have, in large part, become accustomed to doing all these things with, on our Christian faith without Jesus. Like, like we, we give without Him. We fast without Him. We sacrifice without Him. We mourn without Him. Yet we're walking around and we're speaking and we're bearing His name. Folks, All that does is lead to more and more burnout from God's people striving towards Jesus. And you are left discouraged and yearning to actually feel the powerful presence of God in your life. Like, can I get a witness if that's ever been you? (laughs) So you're around Jesus and you claim Jesus and you sing Jesus, but you have no power from Jesus. You have no joy and you have no passion for Jesus. Like, like, yuck. Like, what a terrible way to live for three years and nine years and 20 years on your journey as a Christian, claiming Jesus, singing Jesus, giving to Jesus, but not having Jesus. I don't want that for you. It's supposed to be, folks, an attractive and irresistible faith. Walking with Jesus is supposed to be attractive and it creates an irresistible faith that attracts others. Brothers and sisters, have you forgotten that? Okay, but it gets worse because not having God's actual presence in your life actually increases the complexity around your evangelistic efforts as you try to provide life and hope to others. Are you with me? Because let's be honest, many of us try to offer life and hope to others that we don't even have ourselves. Just tell the truth. 
Like, and the result of that is a deconstruction of Christianity in our culture. And it's happening at a quickened pace. And it's happening by us as well. And we need to become awakened to that reality. So if we want to actually help be the soul and the light and the image bearers that God has actually called us to be, we're going to need renewed perspectives and a redemptive approach to the Christian faith that we claim so desperately to devote our lives to. We got to look at this from redemptive lenses, folks. And that's what this series is going to be all about. That's what redemptive Christianity is, namely turning back or walking towards a Christianity and a faith that actually saves and attracts others. And we will need to walk powerfully in the practice of being in God's presence daily in a regular way. And that brings us to today, part one of our new Redemptive Christianity series titled Discovering Our Redemptive Lenses. Okay, but but in order for us to begin this discovery process of utilizing our redemptive lenses well, we're going to need to remember the story of all reality to begin with, because truly everything starts here, folks, with you and me understanding the story of all reality. Okay, so so I have this, this vivid memory of my mom dropping me off at, um, at a children's ministry um, at this huge church in the, I think it was the Valencia, California area, where my godparents were attending their church at that time. We were visiting, and I think we were spending the, the, um, spending the weekend there. But the memory that I pick up as a kid is that I was going to my godparents' church. And so the service had already started, and, and they were, um, and, and my mom was taking me to the children's ministry, and there were, there was like hundreds of kids, and they're, and they're in there, and, and the music's up, and, and, and everyone's singing and clapping, and, and it really felt amazing. And I don't know if you remember those days, but but as I walked in, they handed me like this this stick thingy and this this triangle thingy, um, and then you got that option, or or you could pick this other option from the other basket with these two like things you wrap around your hands and you clasp them together, and they make a lot of noise. And, and so you, you, I got my things, and I'm clinging and I'm clapping, and I'm, hey, I'm having this amazing time, and I'm tapping my foot, and I'm just smiling, folks away and I'll never forget a few minutes in my my little heart even at like seven or eight begin to kind of focus in on the words of the song for the very first time and because that song folks had hundreds of kids clinging and clapping and clapping and clanging about how God hates liars that's what the lyrics are talking about is like oh God hates liars and right in the middle of this joyfully high moment that I was experiencing with all my noisy peers who were smiling and, and clinging and clapping back at me, the lyrics screamed out to my heart for the first time that I can remember vividly in my, in my life. And, and it said, in my heart, I felt this. This atmosphere and our response to these lyrics it just isn't right. Folks, even as a little eight or seven-year-old, there was this awareness, this spirit-filled awareness that something was off and something was terribly, terribly going wrong. Like, we're literally singing a song based on the Psalter. I went to go find, like, where did it come from? So I did this as an adult preparing for this sermon. We're literally singing a song based on the Psalter to remind us in a mournful way that God hates liars. But yet we're sitting here and we're rejoicing, we're singing about him with the total wrong tone based on what the Psalter was actually saying. And the whole thing... 
the whole thing was it was weird for me and I were and I remember that and if I'm being honest I could give you like 40 other stories about my early discovery as a kid where I can look back now and I can see so many versions and perversions of moral approaches to Christianity that are radically inconsistent with with, with God and the Bible that he's provided for us you see more often than not, Christians live and understand the Christian story of reality through a lens of morality. I'm going to say this to you again. More times than not, most Christians live and understand the Christian story of reality through the lens of morality. Like, like they actually approach the Bible with a moral focus or a moral bent, meaning, meaning this may be you, meaning you approach life and religion and you come to the Bible saying, teach me how to do the things I'm supposed to do and, and teach me how to, to not do the things I'm not supposed to do. And, and folks, for, for some of you, that's what Christianity is for you. It's, it's a book that tells you what to do and what not to do. And yet, it's, it's the other way. And let me be very clear, it's in the actual way, the correct way. Oh God, help us to see this today, that real life and vibrancy with God and Jesus and yourself transpires. And that's having a redemptive lens or understanding of Christianity, not not a moral one. Okay, so so here's my pastoral and, and simplified way of starting this conversation about re the redemptive lens of Christianity. And, and let's put it right here, square in, in 2022, so we can contextually um, take some steps for today as God's people. So let's pretend that we, we were about to binge watch a show, okay? So we're about to binge watch a show, and it's called redemption and you see this amazing trailer come on right you know how those trailers come on and it, and it's legit i mean the music's amazing and and the pieces are all coming together the the cinematography is, is is spectacular and and you decide man tonight i'm gonna watch this new series titled redemption i think i might even binge watch the whole thing and so you say to yourself now now i'm not sure if i'm gonna have enough time to to get through all the episodes tonight but let me just start with the first episode and let me see what kind of happens to my heart and so you watch episode one and it's called creation that's episode one and so you're sitting on the couch and 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 out of nothing out of nothing on the screen all of a sudden everything just burst onto the scene oh it's legit like everything good and everything beautiful and everything right just burst onto the screen and you feel like your soul is like aching with this wonder and this awe of all these things that are coming about in this beautiful episode because like literally out of nothing folks everything beautiful transpires in episode one and and then there's this man and woman right like there's this man and there's this woman and and then you recognize you kind of look in and you sit up you're like oh my gosh like my my favorite male actor is playing the man and, and my favorite uh, actress that is playing the female and, and you're just in heavily invested emotionally now and you're loving it and your heart is just bursting open and it's aching and you're longing for the show to keep going the story is so good even though you're literally watching the show in real time you're like i want more i want more 
I want more. Okay, so so the episode ends, and you know there's absolutely no way now. You're like, oh my god, episode one was totally legit, and there's no way you're going to bed now. Like they got you sucked in because Netflix is doing that 10 second countdown thing, right? When the episode ends and it says five, four, three, two, one, and it's it's hunting you down, and you can't resist it. And so you say to yourself, man. Tomorrow's going to be a rough one at work, but but I'm hooked now. I'm moving on to episode two. And so episode two begins, and it's called The Fall. Okay, that's episode two. <laughs> and you're probably thinking to yourself, OMG, this episode's going to be so surreal. It's going to be even better. The, the man and the woman must be falling into deeper love now. I mean, the, the episode's called The Fall, so oh my gosh, like this romance is going to hit a climax, and I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. Except that's not what happens, right? That's not what happens. Instead, episode two is more like the Empire Strikes Back movie. And spoiler alert, everything, folks. Everything goes wrong. And, and I'm not even a big Star Wars fan. But I do know that Darth Vader in that, uh, in that um, episode turns out to be Luke's be Luke's dad like even I remember that and things got wacky and things got weird from that point forward didn't it like that threw a wrench in the whole script of our hearts as Star Wars fans okay so an episode keep tracking with me okay so in episode two of the TV show everything unravels in the fall episode and and everything that was once beautiful and everything that was once perfect folks it's it's all broken now like the beauty of creation broken the loving relationships broken everything is broken and now you cannot possibly go to bed uh-uh can't do it right i mean what's gonna happen from here like it started off so good and everything's in chaos now and so things are super tense things are super crazy and you have to figure out what what's gonna happen next in episode three and so that 10 second countdown on netflix starts again and it's hunting you down and you are having great <clears throat> anticipation okay so episode three lands on your screen and it's called reconciliation wow reconciliation and so you're saying to yourself omg omg i'm freaking out what is this episode gonna be all about and so you you get back up and you're chomping on your popcorn and you're sitting up and your knees are curled in got your blanket on because at this point you're stress eating because you're freaking out and and you're doing that i can't believe i get to watch this show thing with your feet and your little toes are are squirming and by the way it's your second bag of popcorn um can i get a witness because you're you're leaning in now right okay so episode three is is all about how all things are put back together Oh man, like it's this weird episode where this this character arrives on the scene and, and starts to mend things and, and fix things and redeem things and die for things and it's just like it's so much is happening. Like like he takes this this man and, and this woman played by your favorite male actor, your favorite female actor, and he begins to put them back together, but not before he puts them both back into their intended and original design as male and female and husband and wife and, and all these different categories. Then he starts to take everything, and I mean everything that was fractured, and he starts to reconcile all things. And, and you can feel it now, like this show is different. Like it's most definitely gonna win TV show of the year. And so you're you're tearing up now because this show has officially hit supernova status for you. It's the best thing ever. And so you you land the plane and you say to yourself, 
That's it. That's it. I'm calling in sick tomorrow. I have to watch this whole series tonight. I can't take it. And, and you keep rationalizing to yourself, and you're saying, it's already 2.30 in the morning anyway. Uh, there's only one more episode left in this short little limited uh, series TV show. And, and you notice that the last episode says it's one hour and 38 minutes anyway, so you, you, you make your resolve. That's it. I'm finishing it. I'm heading into episode four. It's the final episode okay and so episode four comes on and it's titled consummation consummation and you're intrigued and you're kind of confused and it's not a word you see very often and so what do you do when you're watching the show and something happens you pull out your phone you go on google and you type in the word consummation and and the word says meaning to restore or make complete again meaning to restore or to make complete again and so you're smiling now because you have the clarification that you needed about what the final episode is going to be all about and so you're pumped and you're excited again because you know that this episode is going to be about everything being put back together the way it was and you're anticipating the relationship between that man and woman that you fell in love with in episode one being put back to that sweet spot that drew your heart in in that first in that first episode but folks it never happens in episode four it never happens at least not in the way you thought it would because everything is most definitely put back together but it's put back together differently in fact this time around it's put back together in a way that is even more beautiful than you could have ever imagined in episode one and you literally say to yourself this story is exceeding my expectations. I can't believe this is a limited series. Oh my gosh. I feel like I want even more. Yet the ending, man, the ending is so perfect. In fact, you're saying this to yourself. In fact, I wouldn't want any more episodes to come after this. It, folks, it's almost like in your heart, you just know this story, this story is finished. Oh man. And so the, the credits start to roll down and you're and you're overwhelmed by 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 the show and everything that's transpired and, and how it ends, but you're satisfied with the perfection of where the story finds its landing place. And and then you're kind of this awareness moment happens and, and you're kind of discouraged because you realize that the only show coming on after this is another corny movie about Valentine's Day from the Hallmark Channel. And by the way, it's the tenth version of another Valentine's Day movie, and you're just over it like yeah. You know what I mean? And, okay, so so on a serious note, this four-episode-long episode, um, episode limited series through creation, the fall, reconciliation, and consummation is the story of reality, folks, according to God. In other words, the story of reality is that the creator God, our God, who creates everything good and created everything right and beautiful, he actually exists and he did that for me and you. And then sin enters the equation. It enters the cosmos and it fractures everything. But, but folks, here's what makes the story so spectacular. God doesn't move away from his creation when the fracture hits. Folks, he moves towards them in the sending of his son. And then Jesus, praise Christ, reconciles people back to the Father and in the end consummates or restores all things. That's the story. Now, now, if you're looking at life through a moral lens, meaning God expects a certain level 
of behavioral modification of my habits and traditions to be upheld. And, and if I don't upheld them and do them at a certain rate, God's going to be really angry with me. Therefore, I need to go about fixing everything in my life. Hey, hey, look at me. The, that type of mentality and that view of things is going to ruin your life and distort your opportunity to have joy. Joy that's everlasting, and it's categorically false to begin with, folks. Like, like don't get me wrong. There's 100% a moral vision in the Bible, and it's not to be ignored, nor should it be minimized. Yet it truly isn't the main point, folks. It just isn't. Your moral uh, uh, ascension and your behaviors changing is not the point, and it's not even a close call. So look at me. So if the lenses by which you understand the Christian faith and if the lenses by which you approach the Bible are of moral lenses, if you've never been invited into the proper lens of the only story that actually defines reality and can save, I promise you, you are going to get stuck living a half hearted existence where you're constantly running into ceilings all the time and you won't be able to figure out why. Okay, so let me just give you this massively important takeaway that I want to stand above all things today for our launching foundational sermon of this sermon series. But but just before I do, I want to acknowledge that you have that if you have a strong church background filled with tons of traditions both church and family, you may learn today if you're open that you are one of the greatest victims of today's conversation. And I mean it. Like it would be Christ's sweet sweet grace to you if you were able to see just how potentially discombobulated your walk with Jesus actually is when juxtaposed to reality, scripture, Jesus, and how you fit into that whole equation from a redemptive lens perspective. And I just, and I just want to be honest with you. And, and that's what led me to, to pray to pray so fervently over the last couple of days as I prepared to preach this sermon. That, that, that's why I, I, I believe with all my heart that this is a love letter from God using me as a vessel to you. That's what led me to have a burning desire to help you, long-term Christian that's been doing this a long time, to move out of the dangerous waters of living your Christian life from a lens of morality. And it's my love letter to those who are wandering and singing about the faith to have a better start than so many of us get. And now I'm hoping that just maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit will activate some confidence after this sermon that, that you and I can walk away with today because of the blood of Jesus. And I mean it. And finally, I'm hoping that this sermon serves as a backdrop and a proper foundation with renewed lenses that, that you and me can approach all areas and all facets of our Christian life that we do. Okay, so, okay, so here it is. Here's the point of today's sermon. It's, it's on your screen. You cannot, I mean it, you cannot do life for Jesus without doing life with Jesus. Folks, it can't be 
done. Like, listen, the moral vision that you see in the Bible, you cannot do it. You can't do it without being with Jesus. Folks, it's fundamentally impossible to live out the, your life and to live out Christian faith without Jesus. It can't be done. Now, you may be thinking, I know that. But maybe you don't. That's what today's about. Because listen, actual life with Jesus is not a faith vision. It's not a religious vision. It's not a moral vision. It's something deeper. It's something wider. And it's something infinitely more productive. It's actually something transformational and something filled. Filled with redemption. And the reason why you may find the Christian life to be incredibly life-sucking and soul-draining and happiness-robbing and dream-killing is because you may be approaching your life with Jesus and Christianity with the lens, with lenses and categories that the Bible doesn't make preeminent. Are you with me? And today, we need to deal with this problem straight on, folks, head on, because it's squandering the joy that God has set before you as his child. And that squandered joy, listen to me, that squandered joy affects your generosity in relationships. It affects your generosity in being a forgiving person. And it affects your generosity to give to people financially. It affects your generosity, folks, as a human being. And so much, and so much more. So, so let's pray. Come on, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us approach today's sermon different. I want us to be different today because today's passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians, I mean, it has the power to shatter those moral glasses by which you may be living your life by. And we need them smashed in the name of Jesus today. And, and this could be the beginning of you picking up new redemptive lenses and a new pair of glasses that I believe our Heavenly Father wants to give to you. So, so let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. We, we need you today. Let's, let's bow our heads. Abba Father. Today truly is, I believe with all my heart, a love letter of a sermon to your people. And I just, I just know it and I can feel it so supremely in every crevice of my being. But roadblocks, Lord, categories, traditions, pride, and so many things are going to be in our way as we track through today's sermon. I'm just putting it in the light. So, so Holy Spirit, help me and guide me as an available vessel and a glad soldier to properly wield the sword of the Spirit today in such a way that cuts through human categories and family traditions and prideful hearts and emotions blocks but but like you do so perfectly help me to build up something better in every area that is torn down today and may all this happen by the word of your power may truth be ours it's because of your beautiful name that we pray amen amen Okay, so, so with that being said, let's approach God's word with more carefulness and more circumspection and more attentiveness and thoughtfulness than ever before. Here it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. It's, it's on your screen. Here's the text. 
For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. Oh man, I can't wait to unpack this. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died was raised. What a conundrum. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What does that mean? Uh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Weird. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Wow, what's that? And and that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh man, this text is loaded. Now, now, right from the gate, I think it's important for us to discern Paul's motivation underneath this passage. Like before we start verse by verse and line by line unpacking um, it, let's. What, what do you think his 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 motivation is underneath this passage? Because here here's what I want to submit to you. That motivation is going to be what's most critical to us to understand the deeper waters of what he's actually saying as he's inspired by God. Okay, so, so that's my question. Here it is. It's, it's on your screen. What is the primary compulsion that is driving Paul forward with great zeal for the nations and deep care for Jesus? Like, Take a moment to answer that question. What do you think? What's that motivation? Just write your answer to the best of your ability. Okay, okay, here, here it is. Paul's main compulsion, what's driving him, is love. Everybody repeat after me. Paul is driven by love. Okay, this is important. So, so this word compulsion that you see in the Greek is a very common word, actually, that's used all throughout the New Testament. And it means to hold together or to hold fast to or to press around or to drive forward. When I was studying, I was like, wow, that's, that's really deep. So it's a type of pressure of force that shapes and forms something. Does that make sense? Okay, so so a good word picture of this would would it would be what happens to coal under the ground, right? Because we all know that coal that's under the ground is pressed and and pressed and and pressed underground. Eventually, it becomes what? It becomes a diamond. Okay, so so Paul is saying essentially, what drives me forward is not my guilt, it's not my shame, it's not my fears, it's the love of Christ. 
that compels me forward. Folks, we got to lean in. Like, can't you see? He is saying within the context of these seven verses that it doesn't matter what anyone thinks of him. It doesn't matter what anyone says about him because he's being driven for it now by a very specific and very powerful love. Okay. Now, now, how freeing would that be if you actually could live in such a way that you didn't care what people thought of you and you didn't care what people said about you? And, and for all you prideful people out there thinking to yourself in your heart saying, I don't care about, about what anybody says about me. I'm a very self-confident person. Listen, listen. <laughs> the more a person says, I don't care, I don't care, more times than not, folks, it's those people that actually care the most, right? Let's, let's just be honest. And, and that's just a little bonus wisdom for you, um, for everyone today, by the way. So remember, the more you hear someone walking around saying, I don't care. I don't care what you think. I don't care what anybody else says. That's almost always a real deep heart cry from that person to be validated. So, so when you hear someone say, I don't care about what anybody thinks of me, re-register that immediately in your head as them actually saying, I really deeply care about what you think and say about me. So please, please say something nice about me when I'm done with my rant about how secure I really am. Okay, so, so, so in the end, it's just posturing, right? Like sometimes we just do that. Like, like most of us, if we're being honest, really, really care about what people think and say about us. Okay. So what's compelling Paul and driving him forward beyond what people think of him? You got to know Paul's background and his context and what people are saying about him beyond all those cares and concerns is love. It's love. So, so let's think about your Christian life right now and let's think about your understanding of the kingdom of God. Like, what is it, brother? What is it, sister in Christ, that actually motivates you and drives you to keep going forward every day to be like Jesus? And don't give me a squeaky clean answer. Give me the truth. What's pushing you forward? Is it fear that if you do the wrong thing and you don't live right that you're going to go to hell? Is it fear that people around you that are all living Christian will, will shame you and be like, man, that person didn't live their life well? Is it guilt? Is it because of your sin and your shame? Is it because you feel that God is perpetually disappointed in you? What drives you forward? Does the love of Christ compel you and drive you forward? Don't lie to me. Tell the truth right now in your heart, Christian. What pulls you? In fact, I want you to answer that right now in your roadmap. Here it is. Here's on your screen a consideration for yourself. What drives me forward in my relationship with Jesus? Just take 10 seconds to write that down. In all honesty, what drives me forward is, write that down. What is, what is that answer? Oh man, because, because that answer, that answer is everything. And, and just to give you a clue, a, a little clue of just how powerful this driving force of love really is and is supposed to be, just go back with me now to verse 14 where it says this. It's, it's on your screen. For the love of Christ controls us. That is a huge statement. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. The one has died for all, therefore all have died. 
Oh, man, the love of Christ controls us because one died so powerfully that we all died. He died so effectively that we all died because of our mere attachment to him. Like, are you kidding me? That, that's it. We're hitting this now. We need to get into this. Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Listen, Paul is straight up pointing out that Jesus is making sure that we understand that in the death of Christ, in what he did, all of us who are in Christ died. We died. We got this, and we all got to skip getting on the cross part that Jesus did for us. He bore that for us. And, and check this out. This, this is so legit. And you can't punish dead people because dead people are already dead. That's true. Oh, oh, this is, this is so important. Like, like if someone's dead, like, what are you going to do to them physically? Nothing. Like, really? You're just going to we're going to all sit here and, and pummel a dead body? Like, that'd be pretty stupid. And it's massively ineffective. Okay. How much would a dead person care about being hit? How much does a dead person care about what you say? Not at all, right? Because, because they're dead now. And there's nothing to defend. And there's nothing to protect anymore. Oh man, this is this is deep. Okay, so so Paul's exhortation here is that in the death of Jesus, every and I mean everyone who actually believes in Jesus has all of their sins absorbed in Christ on the cross so that none, none, none remain. And we from that point get to count ourselves despite ourselves still screwing up as dead to sin. Track with me. And, and, and yes, 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 though all of our habits and though all of our actions aren't actually and fully dead practically, Paul is saying from a redemptive, blood-bought lens perspective, we are totally, categorically dead now as that old person. Okay, okay, this is, this is deep, but move it 18 inches down with me right now. And because we're dead, we don't have to be afraid anymore. We don't have to cower away. We don't have to be ashamed of who we were. We know that part. We, we, we did that at the, at the children's church camp back, back in the summer when we were 15. Now track with me. Because we are dead and we don't have to be afraid and we don't have to cower away and we don't have to be ashamed of not just who we were, but who we are today and the parts that we still struggle with. Now that's a different sermon because listen to me, dead people are dead and they have nothing to defend or protect anymore. Have you heard that sermon, Christian? Because you are dead to rights and you are dead in Christ and Christ rose from the grave and therefore you rose with him. You are dead and you have nothing to defend or protect anymore now. That's why the Gospel of John says that the people who, remember John chapter 3 verse 16, for Gospel of the world that he gives only son, you know what happens after that, right? Because in that same passage, uh, John says, because the people loved the darkness rather than the light, they didn't want to come lest they be exposed. Okay, but for the born-again Christian, for the Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christian, we step into the reality that we're already exposed. That's the actual sweet spot. And because we're already exposed, there's nothing to defend anymore. Do you get that? God saw it. He saw it all in you. And he loved you anyway. 
I'm gonna say it one more time. You've been exposed. God saw it and he chose you and he loved you anyway. Repeat after me. God sees me. One more time. Say it like, God sees me and he loves me anyway. So, so this is usually talked about in a faithful exhortation of, of someone administering communion. So, okay, so, so Brother Noah, Brother Matthew, Brother Ezekiel, I need you to lean in and pay attention because you guys are the next man up at our church of leading communion. So, so track with me. Okay, the communion message essentially is that all of your sins, past, present, and future, all of them have been handled at the cross. Now, now that's a profound level of love, isn't it? Past sins, present struggles, future fall. That, that is, that's profound love. It's the kind of love from God that says, Hey, my son and daughter, though you're awkward and you're a bit screwed up, I'm crazy about you. And, and, and my child, though you're, you're not very smart sometimes, I, I'm, still, I'm still crazy about you. And though I see that you're more interested in my blessings than in devotion to me, I'm, I still love you unconditionally. And even though I see that you're more inclined to take rather than to give in life, I'm still crazy about you and I still want you to know that I love you. Like, folks, that's a crazy, ridiculous, outlandish, undeserved kind of love, isn't it? Like, like, let's just be honest, that even challenges our parental human love, doesn't it? Like, parents, uh, real quick, we all can continue to grow and mature and to upgrade our love for our children to be more like our Heavenly Father has for us, can't we? Okay, now, now focus, focus, because we have to stop cherry-picking around the Bible and allowing ourselves to be deceived so easily. So ponder this. The very God who clearly lays before us, because he does, a moral vision of life filled with very high standards is the same God that says you and I will not fulfill that moral vision and those high standards without being with him. That's the expectation. I'm going to say to you again, the very God that lays clearly before us a moral vision of life filled with very high standards is the same God that says you and me will not be able to fulfill that very high standard of moral vision without being with him, with Jesus. And he lays out that expectation because folks, you cannot live for Jesus without actually living with Jesus. So, so Paul is saying in the text that he is compelled by radical love because he is convinced that one died for all. Therefore, all have died. In fact, Paul says this even more beautifully, in my opinion, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It's, it's on your screen. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh man, do you hear what's going on? Paul is saying he is D-E-A-D, dead. 
Paul is saying, because the sinful part of me died with Jesus on the cross, and Jesus took all of my sin and all of my shame and all of my, we're in the gospel now, and all of my sin and all my shame and all my guilt in a way that frees me from having to carry it on my own shoulders, I'm compelled to love God, love Jesus so much because he took such a heavy weight off of me and gave me such an opportunity to live without restraints now. And man, I'm just so grateful and I'm pumped about that. Folks, that's where Christian excitement comes from, namely overwhelming passion and joy for what Jesus has done for us. Are you tracking? And Paul is saying, I'm driven forward and I'm surrounded. That's what, remember compulsion, Greek? Okay, I'm, I'm driven forward. I'm surrounded. I'm pressed and I'm motivated by Jesus's very specific love to handle my dirty laundry when he didn't have to. So Paul's saying, so my love Oh, my love for what Jesus did. That's why I'm enjoying hanging out with him. It's not because of my guilt and my shame and my fears, you weirdos. It's because of my awe and my wonder at the kindness of Jesus towards me. Folks, Paul has a radical, clear understanding of who he is without Jesus and what Jesus has done. And in the intersection of that reality is his Christian passion and excitement. Okay, so I got to focus. It's important that we now return to the idea of, of the moral lens versus the redemptive lens. Because if you grew up in church or you're a longtime Christian with tons of traditions, this is a far more dangerous reality for you than you may realize. You may have bigger blocks and roadblocks ahead to tear down than you may realize right now because through the moral lens you're not going to walk and be with Jesus in a very joyful way I'm just being honest because you're going to feel like you're perpetually disappointing him or yourself all the freaking time and you're going to feel that your rituals aren't good enough consistent enough or deep enough and you're going to struggle with feeling like God is constantly mad at you because you suck at being good and you struggle with sin or you're going to struggle with feeling that God is constantly mad at you because you suck at being consistent with all your Christian activities and all your fasting and prayer and Sabbath rhythms. I'm just telling you, this is what happens. Like, whatever side of the equation you're on, feeling like you're disappointing God because of sin or feeling like you're disappointing God because of how, uh, how in, um, not perfect you're walking and all the things of, of, that God calls you to walk in, whether your struggle is directly like God disappoints me or I disappoint myself, wherever side of the equation you're on, you are really trying to be good though, aren't you? And I know you are. Like, track with me. How many times did you swear, I'm never going to do it again? only to do it again. Like, yuck, man, it sucks, right? We've all been there. I get that. And yet the Bible teaches us that where our sin increases, God's grace abounds all the more. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Boom! Belt the truth. Armor up. 
We got to remember that. Okay, okay, so so what's happening right here in the text, folks? Because it, it, it's it's discombobulating for so many of us because we've been raised with preaching that was so narrow and traditions that were so redemptively empty and churches that were so judgy. And as a result, the moral lenses, whether you want to call that or not, you can hide it behind something else and give it a different name, but the moral lenses swallows up the redemptive lenses that God actually cares for you and me and that he's here for something bigger and grander than your moral ascension. Okay, and so even though many of you are able to see that truth, because some of you are like, I already see that. Okay, I got you. Though some of you can see that truth, you have lost and some of you have never held the actual joyful treasure in your heart that has freed you to operate your life like that through the truth of the redemptive lenses of Scripture. So, so looking at the world through moral lenses is not the heart of Christianity, okay? It's not. It's pagan. It's secular. It's a human construction. It's not a godly one. And, and don't get me wrong, it's not bad to discuss and affirm moral concepts in sermons and churches. We did that in the Ephesians series, but it's most definitely wrong, and it is the wrong lens of priority to focus your church or your sermons on. And so let me say it again. God cares about morals. Yes, he does. But, but we can't get to the morals rightly without abiding in Jesus. Are you listening? So if you're living consciously or subconsciously by moral lenses right now, you're not going to get where you want to be in life. And I need you to trust me today. And your life is going to most definitely feel draining all the time. You will not have vibrancy of Christ in you. You will not be excited. You will not be joyful. I can't tell you how many brothers and sisters I've met that love Jesus with all their heart and they have been serving and tithing and they do so many Christian things. But you don't look like you're happy, brother. And you don't look happy, sister. And I need to ask you a question. Where is your Christian joy? And where is your Christian excitement? And I'm telling you today, this is the conversation to be had. Now, now before I keep tracking forward, let me show you how God absolutely does care, though, about morality in our lives. Because i got to preach the hardest sermon ever, which is to tear down this structure, but then to lift it up and to live in the tension point. Okay, so... Because being motivated, and this, this is how we can think through it. This is how much God cares about, about morals, rightly. Because being motivated and being compelled by love actually leads to the transformed life that you're looking for, folks. And, and, and that's what Paul's saying when he keeps tracking into verse 15 and 16. So, so let's put that back on the screen now. Here's the word of the Lord. And he, Jesus, died for all. Okay, let's read slowly. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, namely God, who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 16. From now on, transition, new man, new creation. You're different. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Uh, and, and the flesh means meaning a worldly point of view, okay? So I'm really again, we regard no one according to a worldly point of view. That is critical, Christian. 
Therefore, because of all of what we just read, we no longer regard anyone according to a worldly point of view, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, or we regarded Christ from a worldly point of view. We regard him thus no longer. Okay, so here, Paul, inspired by God, is saying that because we are compelled by love, and because the one in Jesus died for all, that therefore allowed us all to therefore die with him, and because of all of that, we are set free to no longer live for ourselves. Man, this segment of scripture is violent, and it's countercultural in every single way in juxtaposition to the day and the age that we live in. Because you and I are conditioned from the second we breathe air on this planet to believe that life is about whatever our heart wants and that everything that we need, we should have, everything that we want belongs to us and that our personhood in, in and of itself is ours for the taking. Check with me. You and I are conditioned to, to not let anyone stop us from being who we are, who we believe we are meant to be. And, and, and I just want to be honest with you, that mentality of just, it's all about me and it's about what I say and it's about what my beliefs are and who I want to be. That whole thing is a bunch of hot monkey garbage. And I mean it. And if I'm being honest, I could say it a whole lot more stronger, but I don't want to lose the, the point of today's sermon and, and offend anyone today. So, so just know this, that mentality is categorically untrue. You belong to someone. Listen, throughout human history, people have always known that there are compulsions within them that should not be given free reign. Every human knows that deep within their heart. But now, we are living in a dangerous day and age where all boundaries are being considered as oppressive. Now, now almost every single boundary and every single rule that is, in, that is constructed, we are, we are transforming that and giving it an experience as it causing trauma on us. So we have a lawsuit for this and we need counseling sessions for that regarding boundaries and rules and expectations on our life. And, and if you want to look around and study the, dis, the disintegration of our society, all you need to do, folks, is to meditate on that lie and on that narrative. No rules. No authority. I can do what I want whenever I want because I need to truly be me at the core and I cannot be me if I don't feed into all my compulsions. But Paul is saying, no, no, no. I want to set you free in Jesus from living for yourself, living for yourself like that. And this leads, folks, to a very important takeaway. It's, it's on your screen. The most Miserable and anxious people on earth are the people who simply live for themselves. And I mean it. The most miserable and anxious people on earth are the people who simply live for themselves. Listen to me. It is impossible to have a deep and, and, and to have relational connections if you and your family are constantly at the center of the universe. Listen to me. And you may be thinking, well, why? Why? Okay, because everyone and everything 
has to serve your ends. That's why. Let me unpack this for a moment. So, so if you want a terrible marriage, all you need is one person, one other spouse in that marriage, thinking that they're the point of that marriage. If either spouse lives in a way that says everything we're doing is about myself and about my autonomy and about my compulsions and about my desires, if either spouse lives in a way that communicates that their existence is about becoming everything he or she wants to become, which means that whatever they want to do, they get to do when they want to do it, how they want to do it. Folks, show me that marriage and I will show you a marriage with no life and no intimacy in that marriage. Instead, what they will have is the reward of a miserable marriage as their treasure. So, so when you live in a way, oh man, track with me. So when you live in a way where you think that your family is the center of the universe and everything else around you is meant to serve your family's need. I don't think like that. We do our family, you do your family. There's a lot of traps here and I understand that. I'm trying to break these things down. Holy Spirit, help me because we got sin here. If you live in a way where you think you and your family is the center of the universe insofar that everything around you must conform to your family's needs, you cannot expect to live life filled with communal intimacy and deep connection with others. It's not possible. <laughs> Can't you see when everything and when everyone thinks that they're the point and everyone thinks that their own family is the ultimate end, what you're going to have is a day and an age of outrage, folks. And that's what we have before us in our society. Like, like think about it this way. Right now here in 2022, why are people freaking out about COVID and about which side you're on with COVID? How about, why are people freaking out about politics right now? Why are people freaking out when people cut them out, cut them off in line or maybe on the freeway? Uh, why are people melting down radically all the time in this generation? Why are we freaking out? Pay attention. It's because we have been discipled by our culture to boast in our hearts. I'm the point. My family is the point. My agenda is the point. Or my appointment today is the point. And so when life and tragedy and circumstances uh, painfully remind you that you most definitely are not the point, we get angry and we throw temper tantrums, folks, like children. We're, we're cussing on the freeway because everybody serves your point of your dentist appointment or whatever it is that's going that's going on because we say in our hearts I'm freaking pissed off that you don't understand that I'm the point like doesn't my spouse understand how important this is to me how dare he not support me how dare she not support me like like doesn't my employer know how valuable I am and how much I do around here I'm leaving this place. I'm not validated enough. And, and how dare they ask that of my family? Don't they know how busy I am? We have things to do. How dare this organization or this church or this person encroach upon my family's priorities? 
I don't like it. Okay, and, and this is how we're being discipled by the culture today, folks. Namely, this is how we walk, and this is how we often fall apart. And what makes things even more sick and twisted is that there are so many Christians today living under the moral lenses of Christianity affixed to a backwards understanding of the family unit. And I'm serious. And their moral lens and backwards understanding of the family unit, according to the biblical narrative of what God did when he constructed it, leads them to not risk their comfort. It leads them to not truly reach their city and to genuinely live sacrificially. And they live comfortably in their homes under the banner, I'm a Jesus follower, but I'm not available. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Folks, when Christ comes into your heart, everything is supposed to flip upside down for you. I'm going to say it again. When Christ actually comes in your heart, when, he, when, when Christ takes residency up in you, life flips upside down. Because all of a sudden, <gasps> broken people have room to step right into the middle of your family's priorities because they are now with you. Because Jesus is with them, and you long to be with Jesus and attached to everything Jesus is doing from a kingdom perspective. So, so if everything is, isn't flipping upside down for you, if things aren't flipping upside down for you in how you approach your life, now that Jesus is supposedly on the scene of your life, my question for you is, why? Why? Why aren't you playing and resting and giving and loving and forgiving differently? Why are you not playing like a redeemed person? Why do you not rest differently like a redeemed person? Why don't you give like a, not, oh, we give like, no, no. Why don't you give like a Christian according to the book of Acts chapter two, chapter four? Why are you not forgiving? I did my best. We are going to, you know, we're going to have our, our different opinion. No, why are you not reconciling and being Christ in that situation? Folks, do you actually genuinely have a relationship with Jesus or are you of the crowd? Because that's the question. Is Jesus habiting in you in a way that has flipped life for you or are you of the crowd? Well, well, today, here comes the love of Christ for anyone who has ears to hear. Because right here in 2 Corinthians, you have the opportunity to be set free from believing that you're the point today. And you can step dramatically into the narrative and you can start heralding that you are not the point. And, and that will allow you to start to rightly order your footsteps, Christian brother and sister. So, so in a way, it, it's going to free you up, but it's also going to discombobulate all your categories. And that may be uncomfortable. Okay, so, so here's another very important sticky statement that I want us to, to think about right now, and I want it to be the anthem of our redeemed life in Christ. Here it is. It's, it's on your screen. A life and identity compelled by the love of Jesus produces an allegiance to the kingdom of God in a person that fully marks their life. Let me say this again. A life and identity compelled by love, not guilt, not shame, but by love of Jesus 
it produces an allegiance to the kingdom of God in a person that fully marks every area, folks, every area of your life. Okay, now, now let me unpack this for just a moment. So, so being compelled, right, genuinely compelled by the love of Jesus and being compelled about how God has reconciled you through Jesus back to himself and being compelled by how much he is for you and that he's not against you at all, those are the ways that you are supposed to be compelled by love and driven into every single thing you do for Jesus. Folks, we are not to be compelled by getting our act together. No, we are not to be compelled by getting our act together just so he doesn't light us up with fire and lightning. That's disgusting Christianity, folks, and it's not biblical. The redeemed lenses of life with Christ pulls us away from the moral lenses that say, I'm compelled to get my life straight before he destroys me, or I'm compelled to get my life straight and to do a bunch of things to be a good person so that God might bless me with my job or a better marriage or my kids to be more obedient or for my health to improve. The redemptive lens frees you and pulls you away from that thinking. Focus. Genuine believers are not to be compelled by any of these things from the moral lens. Instead, you and, and me are to be compelled by the love of Christ and the beautiful reality that we've been set totally and catechically free to ridiculously gaze on the beautiful reality of God's insatiable grace and mercy on our lives. We don't have to do anything to earn it. And that reality begins to reorientate your entire life and to value what God values and to love what he loves. And folks, that's where, and not a moment before, that's where morality comes into the picture. Namely, it's a byproduct of a relationship with Jesus filled with love. Let me say this to you. Morality comes into the picture as a byproduct of the relationship with Jesus, not as a goal to be achieved. I'm going to say it again, Christian. Morality comes in as a byproduct of your relationship with Jesus, not as a goal to be achieved or strived after. Listen, we are actually set free in Jesus to not try to work for God so hard. Okay, you don't have to do it because in Jesus, we are actually urged instead to enjoy life with him. Okay, Pastor Brandon, I'm confused. Like you're saying it's about enjoying God and enjoying life with God. But, but, but about seven or eight months ago, we were, we were in the Christian war. Ephesians part 37, help me understand the tension. I got you. I got you. I understand. Okay, so, so yes, we are called to live in Christ and to enjoy life with Christ, but yet we're, we're supposedly in a war and we're a soldier. What does that mean? Folks, remember, so much of the war is not us going around sin-sniffing and fighting. It's standing armored up. So what, <coughs> excuse me, so what are we standing up in? We're standing up in the fact that we're chosen and adopted and redeemed and forever and forever wealthy. We've been forgiven. We're sealed with inheritance. Remember, while there are times where we have to 
use the sword of the spirit, almost everything is a defensive posture. Okay, so let's go deeper. So, so how do we live enjoying God, yet we're in a Christian war? How do we do that? Here's this word picture. It's like being in a war where our job and our anthem is to believe that God is good and to believe that God provides and to find satisfaction in that. And the war is that when storms and trials and worms and enemies and darts and everything else comes our way, that the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the, and the helmet of salvation would be our defensive strategy. We would plant our caligai, our, our shoes of the gospel center of peace, and we would say, I'm unshaken by this trial, this tragedy, this offense, this ridicule, and I declare I'm blessed in Jesus. And I'm going to continue to walk in excitement and enjoy with him. That's, that's the war. Okay, so let's, let's, let's keep tracking and let's take a deeper look into our relationships according to the text here in Corinthians. It's, it's on your screen. Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we, are, we regard no one according to the flesh. This is how we engage in the war, okay? From now on, therefore, we, we regard no one according to the flesh, or we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Of view. Okay, so, so not only are we reconciled to God in a way where God is the point, and we are acknowledging that we're not the point, we're no longer the point, now, all of a sudden, our horizontal relationships start straightening out. This is the beautiful thing that happens. They start straightening out. And, and Paul's saying, brothers and sisters, you are free to stop viewing people from a worldly point of view in a similar way that I once viewed Jesus. Wait a minute, Paul. Wait a minute. What are you talking about? Okay, well, let's check that out again because it's right here in the text. And I don't want you to miss it. It's, it's on your screen. Here we go. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh or according to a worldly point of view, even though we once regarded who? Christ according to a worldly point of view. We regard him thus no longer. Oh, man. So Paul's saying that there was a time where, where he once saw Jesus as the problem? Okay, let's dig in. Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Eyes up here with your minds so clear. Track with me. Paul once thought that Jesus was the one who was super religious and super moral, and, and he despised Jesus because he thought Jesus would lead people away from the path of life that God had so clearly laid out in the Old Testament. Oh, let's go. So, so Paul saw Jesus as the enemy and, and the one who was robbing people of the life and the eternity and the joy that he understood that God was offering his people according to the Old Testament. And so Paul, who was Saul at that time, set out to destroy the church and thereby destroy all Christians. <laughs> but, but that's what we do too, right? Like we're all a bunch of Sauls, if we're being honest. And, and some of you may be thinking right now, that's not true of me. I would never be like Saul trying to destroy Jesus and the church. Okay, but folks, you aren't being honest. We all have versions of being, of carrying Saul's heart. And, and I'm going to show you. 
We all have at some level, um, excuse me, we have all felt at some level that Jesus was asking too much from us and that he wanted to, and, and that he was going to rob us from what we really wanted and what we believed the Christian life was supposed to offer us. And so when the Christian life didn't offer that, we were disappointed. And we were like, Jesus, where are you? I thought you're good. Why am I suffering? Why is my family going through this? And we were disappointed in Jesus. And, and if we're being honest, we've all had seasons where we felt like Jesus wasn't going to provide for us what we think he should provide for us. And he wasn't going to give us the deeper meaning in life that we're always so desperately searching for. And if some of you are being super honest, that's where you're struggling right now with that Saul-like heart that says Jesus doesn't provide and Jesus doesn't give and Jesus takes things off track from what I feel my heart really wants. Okay, so, okay, folks, okay, folks. So that lie has been around since the Garden of Eden and the serpent was on the scene. Namely, that Jesus doesn't care for you. That lie has been any that he won't be there for you and that you're better off on your own. That's the greatest lie in the universe, that God doesn't care about you and that you actually would be better off on your own. So what Paul is saying right here in the text is that we don't regard Christ like that anymore. No, and that means we are free to not regard other people like that anymore as well. This, this is deep waters. It means we, we understand that our enemies are not flesh and blood at all and that truly increases our capacity to be empathetic and to be loving and generous and kind towards all sorts of people remember the jonah series but if you live and operate and view christianity through the lens of morality then there's always going to be an in group and there's always going to be an out group and it's going to be based upon that lens of morality and the problem with that listen to me the problem with that is that these groups that are formed in your heart are based upon your own definitions of morality no they're not my mom taught me I learned in Sunday school stop it stop it listen to me the problem with this is that the in groups and the out groups are based upon your own definitions of morality or your parents or some tradition in church that you took as biblical instead of it being founded upon the finished work of Jesus only to be seen from a redemptive lens perspective. And to that point, Paul is saying that no longer we are to regard anyone according to the flesh. We can't do that anymore. And that means we don't look at people and see their sin. Do you get that? Instead, we see the grace of God pursuing them and running after them. And that should compel our hearts to want to join him in that pursuit and to welcome them into our hearts and to welcome them into our homes and to that that's the Christian part, but you really and to welcome them into your wallets and to welcome them into your family dinner table. And you can't do that if you're not deepening out as a Christian and you're not deepening out in your community because I've because you show me the Christian that's immature and I'll show you the Christian who's not gladly 
deepening out in their church. And you show me the long-term Christian who's been married for 50 years and has a beautiful family and is truly on mission. And I'll show you the Christian who is deeply involved in their church community because it's God's, it's God's design. Lean in. One of Jesus's main critiques of the Pharisees was that they set up walls and boundaries that made it difficult to, for people to get into the kingdom. And he came to blow those out the window. So Christians, stop that. Stop that right now. Don't live and operate like that. Don't you dare be a modern day Pharisee. Don't do it. I keep telling you here at RCC, when you live like that and you believe like that and you act like that, you belittle the cross every single time. And this leads to a very important takeaway. It's, it's on your screen. Moral lenses create hurdles and obstacles for people that are far from God to come into the kingdom of God. We got to stop it. But redemptive lenses see the opportunity to invite everyone, and I mean everyone, Jonah series, everyone, the five fatal crimes, everyone into the kingdom, irrespective of their starting point and pain points of life. And don't you dare erase those last seven words. One more time. Moral lenses create hurdles and obstacles for people that are far from God to come into the kingdom of God, but the redemptive lenses see the opportunity to invite every single person into the kingdom, irrespective of what they've done or what is going on right now in their lives. Folks, this is why Paul was so intent and focused on talking about how he was lost and how bad he was and how he was the chief of all sinners. Because basically he's saying, hey, yo, look at me. Look at me. There's no way you're out because I'm not out. And you are so radically in because I'm a living testimony and I'm in. So let me encourage you because I have, been, I have persecuted the church and I was a blasphemer and I was a murderer of Christians and yet grace was afforded to me and in Christ he said I'm in and I'm Paul and I'm here to preach the word to you inspired by God as an apostle so that the churches can be built from Judea to Samaria Samaria and Jerusalem and all the way to California and Oregon, Beaverton to RCC. And I'm here to tell you, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, whether you have a difficult story or a tragedy or you were raised in the church and you just don't feel good enough because you should be further along, you are in. You are in with Jesus. Now burst open with excitement for that reality. Hey, look at me, family. What makes you think that you have outsinned the cross of Christ if Paul is saying that he's in? And what makes you think that you have underperformed in expectations for Jesus when Paul says it's been removed 
You were accepted before you did one act of, with Jesus, before you did one Sabbath wrong, before you did your best Sabbath day. You were already in with Jesus. Oh, help me, Holy Spirit. That's different, right? That changes perspectives towards ourselves and other people. Maybe you don't have joy because you're weighed down with performance. I, you can't be happy if you've got weight and anchors of expectations all the time for yourself. Holy Spirit, help me. But listen, none of this, none of this can be accomplished if you keep living with moral lenses. We got to shatter them because the moral lenses lets you and me know that you have fallen short and that I have fallen short and that we're all in a bunch of trouble. So we better just quit now. We better just, we better walk away from this whole Christian thing now. We're, we're never going to make it. But, but look at where Paul goes next in verse 17. I'm going to keep unpacking this from you for you. Look at verse 17 on your screen from the redemptive lens perspective. Oh my goodness. Therefore, I love therefore, 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 because one died and you've died in him and you're set free. Therefore, because you don't have, therefore, 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 if anyone is in Christ, he is. Not he's going to become, not he has to earn. He is a new creation. Oh, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Verse 18. All this is from God, from God, not you, from God. God did it, who through Christ, not you, not your moral, through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not do you not not in the Greek means not, not in Hebrew means not, not in not counting. Brandon's trespasses against him. Put your name there and entrusting to Brandon. Put your name there. The message of reconciliation. Are you kidding me? This is where Brandon, Pastor Brandon's passion comes from. Are you kidding me? God says that he's not counting my trespasses against me, but not only did he not do that, he's entrusting me as a Christian soldier to be an ambassador of the message of this story of reconciliation. Oh my God. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, through us, not despite us, through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. Oh man, that that is that's the gospel. Now, now this is staggering because Paul is showing us just how tied the the withness of the W I T H dash N E S S. Paul is showing us the withness of us to God, of us to God and how that is attached to our human flourishing and our moral vision that the Bible is laying out. You can't untangle them. That's why I keep telling you, you cannot live for Jesus without being with Jesus. Are you getting that yet? Okay, so, so the entire energy and the force and the call to live out the moral vision of the Bible comes through, the, through a reconciled relationship with God alone. Are you getting that? 
In fact, the entire passage is full, that we're reading, is full of inseparable witness of God. Do you see that? Everywhere it's like God reconciled to us, us to God, God ambassador, Christ did for us. I mean, you can't untangle it. It's, it's, all, it's all attached. So, so, so this witness that we have is, is the foundation where the, the outpouring and the byproduct of human flourishing, thereby the moral living that we disproportionately focus on, that's where it comes from. It's a force of love, not moral behavioral effort and behavioral modification. So, so reconciliation is the point of this passage, not moral ascension. I'm going to say it again. Reconciliation is the point of this passage. It's the point of the gospel, and it's the heart of God, not moral ascension. And the reconciliation going on here is not a moral reconciliation either. You're like some of you are not. You still you got to tear it down. I get it, Pastor Brandon. It's about being reconciled into better behavioral things that look like Jesus. Ephesians chapter five: imitate God. It's about becoming more like the habits that He does. Don't. Don't do it. It's not about moral reconciliation. It's not a moral value system, but rather it's a relational reconciliation and it's a relational value system. What was broke in the garden was a relationship, not just behavior. Did you hear what I said? I don't care what children's story you heard about the apple and the serpent and and we did this and now all of a sudden we're bad people. What was broken and the real tragedy was that the relationship, folks, between you and God broke. Between me and God broke. And the whole story of redemption is about God fixing that relationship through his son for us. And that is the point. And it's with a very strong Holy Spirit, period. And I'm dead serious. And I want you to see that. I want you to see that. So do you see that in the text? Do we need to read it again? I don't want anyone to be left behind. Let's, 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 let's at least read verse 18 right here. It's on your screen. All this. What's all this? Uh, uh, that, any, that, that you're a new creation, that the old has passed away, that you're now new, that, that you're in Christ, you've been reconciled back to him, that you're in God now, that he's not counting any trespasses against you anymore, but yet he's loving you and giving you a new job and a new responsibility. It's one thing to tell my children I'm not mad anymore. It's a, new th- it's a whole other thing to say I trust you and I'm going to give you more responsibility. That's what he does. Okay, so, so all of that is from God not us, who through Christ, not us, reconciled us to himself and gave us free, we didn't earn it, the ministry of reconciliation. Okay, okay, so before morality is considered, okay, and doing good deeds occur, and establishing better practices are prioritized, and a a genuine relationship with God through Jesus must occur. I'm going to say it again. Before morality is considered and doing good deeds occur and establishing better practices are prioritized, a genuine relationship with God must occur. Because God is after a reconciliation with you and with me and the byproduct, the byproduct of that reconciled reconciled relationship leads to a transformed life. We don't just want a transformed life in and of itself. That's the crowd. We want our relationship with God back. And the byproduct of that is a transformed life that looks differently. We give differently, we play differently, we rest differently, we forgive differently, we think differently. And because of all those different differentlies that are occurring, it, we just so happen to have 
spirit-filled morality. Are you, are you getting this? The spirit-filled order. It's, it's literally through our relationships being transformed because of our relationship with God. It's through our forgiveness capacities being upgraded because of how Christ forgave us. It's because we become informed through Jesus of how, how to thrive and what thriving actually means from a biblical perspective because of the cross. It's because we learn how to give from a, not from a world and a man-made construction, not from a family tradition, but from a biblical one. It's through all of that that your biblical character is formed. So if you ever thought, how does this person develop character from a biblical perspective? It's, it starts with a relationship with Jesus where Christ has a breakthrough and they have a passion and excitement because of what Jesus has done for them. But folks, we can't rightly talk and engage about any of these things if we're living and operating with those heavy moral glasses. It's time to pick up redemptive ones. Okay, so, so right now, right now, let's do a, a really important spiritual check. Let's do a little spiritual MRI to see how we're actually doing right now in our lives. Are you, are you ready for that? So, so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at an MRI from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It's, it's on your screen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, now here's what I mean by an MRI. It, if it is true that we've been reconciled to God and Christ relationally, and it's with this withness that ultimate transformation actually occurs, that verse should lay across our souls so well. Let me put it back on the screen. You need to see that, not me right now. If this is true, and we've been reconciled to God in Christ relationally, and this witness is actually happening in us, when you see this verse, you should be able to discern whether or not you understand it, and more importantly, whether you actually believe it. So, so, okay, look at me, look at me. So let's do an exercise just, just for a few moments. So I want everybody to close your eyes right now. Come on, participate, close your eyes, close your eyes. And I want you to use these new, fresh, redeemed glint, um, glasses, these, these new lenses. You're just getting, you're just, you're, you're unfamiliar with them. You're learning how to use them. And I want you to start to use your redeemed imagination. Okay, so eyes are closed and, and you're gonna help me out here. Okay, so imagine God on his throne in all his cosmic power and in all his sovereignty, just for a moment, eyes are closed. And then, and then imagine he's, he's sitting on the most spectacular throne you've ever seen, whatever that means to you. Use that imagination. And, and somehow he's, he's so high and he's so miraculous that he can look across and gaze upon the entire expansion of creation all at once. And he's holding the whole creation in tension. And then imagine, imagine with eyes closed that he looks across the entire expansion of the universe with fierce diamond-like eyes. Okay? And then imagine that he then narrows his vision onto you alone. Are you imagining this? 
It's, it's like a scene from a movie where, where the camera angle is out in space and then it begins to zoom fast into the world and then down into the continent and then down into the city and then down to an individual person and that person is you. Keep imagining, eyes closed. And, and in that moment, God sees all the thoughts of your heart and the motivations of your mind and all of your closeted moments. He sees it all. Wow. And, and in that moment, as he sees every single part of you, he never looks away, not even for one second. He just keeps staring and staring and staring deep into the, your very soul as he examines every stage, every sin, and every crevice of your life. As you paint that picture with your eyes closed, what do you see? Start to answer that in your heart. Step into the silence of this moment. What do you see, brother and, and, and sister? What do you see? Okay, here's the MRI test. Eyes are closed. I want you to tell me, what does God look like to you? How is his face? What is his energy? Don't tell me what you learned in Bible class. Tell me what you actually see right now. And more importantly, tell me what you're feeling right now in this moment. Are you doing that? Is he disappointed? Is he frustrated? Is he trying to figure out when you're going to get your act together? What is his response? Brother and sister, what does the response and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus actually done for your heart? Okay, eyes open. Look at me. Hey, look at me. Look at me. There's a lot of sticky statements that we say here at Redemption City Church. We, one of them is on our website. It's okay not to be okay. God meets, meets you where you're at and so will we. It's just not okay to stay there. Uh, uh, lean in to the gospel. Lean in. Uh, uh, we believe you can have an encounter with God like you've never had before. Live in light of eternity. Okay, so, so here's a new one that, that I want to start saying across all my sermons and all of my discipleship with the opportunities God gives me and to my own soul, every opportunity I get. And I hope that you adopt this language and you start saying it too. Here it is. God is not in love with some future version of you. He radically loves you today. Staff, I want that on our front page as soon as possible. God is not just in love with some future version of you. He radically loves you today. And we want to tell you more about that. <laughs> and that's so hard for us to accept sometimes, isn't it? Yes, it is. Namely, that God loves us today, right now. But brother and sister, that's everything that's going on in today's passage about the witness that we have with Jesus. That's what Paul is explaining about the collision of human flourishing, moral living, and the, and the foundation of all of it coming as a byproduct of a reconciled relationship with Jesus. This passage is freeing you and me to fully accept in our hearts that God loves us now. God loves you now and not just some future version of yourself. And because you've been reconciled to him, you are now with him and we are now welcomed into his presence. 
but we're not going to be feeling that welcoming into his presence and we're not going to feel celebrated as his sons and daughters and we're not going to be able to step past the awkwardness of the fact that he sees my dirty laundry and loves me anyway if we don't take our hands and let it go, man. All this striving and effort. We can't do it. In other words, moral living and the failure to do it perfectly, it doesn't trump the cross. And I want you to get that today. Your salvation isn't dependent isn't dependent on your moral, behavioral proudness or abilities. It's dependent on your love for Jesus and your belief that he did it for you already. And that is not meant to give you a license to sin, but rather it grants you and me the license to try again. I'm going to say it again. <laughs> what God has done for you does not give you a license to sin. It frees you up. So you're confident to try again, despite your sin, without drowning in your own fragilities. I'm, I'm doing it again. What God has done for you is does not give you a license to sin. It grants you the spirit-filled confidence to try again, despite your sin, so that you don't drown in your own fragilities. Come on. Like, like those of us who have children, we know, we get this principle, right? We know that our children are going through awkward stages of development, but we don't experience those in-between stages as something to be agitated about or bothered by, right? Like, like that'd be weird. And we don't say, Oh my gosh, what a freaking loser my kid is. I can't believe that my little baby can't keep his milk in his mouth or, or my baby can't keep his poop in his pants. Like, like we don't say, what a burden. I'm out of here. I'm, don't call me until my kid stops spitting up milk and they stop pooping in their pants. They need to get their life together. No, we don't do that. In fact, what we find right in our hearts is that we actually move towards our children in those stages of development, right? We move towards them. We actually, this is crazy, we actually come with a heightened sense of love and responsibility and desire to protect them and a desire to come alongside them and a desire to want to provide for them, don't we? And, and this, this withness we carry with our children th throughout these developmental stages, it's all about us drawing nearer to our children so they feel loved enough to draw near to us through these awkward stages of development. Oh, I'm preaching a, a family series now, and, and this is amazing for adoption as well. As you draw towards them with love unconditional, it gives the room for them to draw towards you. And there's a witness effect. And it's, track with me, and it's this very dependable and foundational witness that provides the very atmosphere our young children need to grow confidently into the maturity that we have set before them to get to, isn't it? And when a child, listen to me, and when a child doesn't have that security, think about foster kids, think about broken homes. When a kid doesn't have that security, they lose more confidence and it pulls them further down and they actually do worse and worse and worse and worse, right? So see, it's broken. If you, having more standards and conditions tears a person down, it doesn't build a person up. Okay, well folks, we are God's children. Do you get that? And he knows all of this regarding us as well. This entire notion that God is letting us off the hook when we fall into sin, 
comes from looking at things from, uh, of the Christian life through the moral lens. We're going to shatter that today. But in the name of Jesus, we got to put our redemptive lenses on because him choosing to stick with us despite our mess-ups, is the very parental love that allows us to continue forward and to poop less in our pants and to spit less milk up on our shirt every single day of our Christian life. That's what it means to be driven by love. It's like a child who knows that no matter how many times they poop in their pants and no matter how many times they don't make it to the toilet, they know they have another opportunity with mommy and daddy, don't they? And having that confidence from their parents drives them forward to try to poop in the toilet again. Do you get this? That's what motivates them to keep working on the change. It's the love and the commitment underneath. And so when a toddler comes up and says to their parents while pointing at the toilet and shrieking, Look, Mommy and Daddy, Daddy, I did it, I did it, I pooped in the toilet, I pooped in the toilet. When a kid does that, the, yes, yes, there's a demonstration and a celebration of the habit or the behavioral change, namely the child made it to the toilet and they pooped in the, they got their poop in the toilet. Yes, that, that that's actually happening. But what's actually driving that little toddler forward is the love they have for their parents and the desire to make their parents happy, to make their parents howled, not the actual behavioral change. Are you track with me? In other words, the toddler doesn't care two cents about where he or she poops. Come on, have you, have you been around toddler? Poopy in the pants, poopy in the toilet, poopy in the car seat, poopy on the floor. It doesn't matter. Instead, what the toddler gets bonkers crazy excited about is to honor mom and dad and for mom and dad to go, oh, good boy, good girl. So the honor and the desire to make mom and dad happy is what motivates the kid. Okay, so we're not to be motivated by what we can do for Jesus insofar as how we change, but to be motivated to say, God, what you care about, I prioritize. It doesn't matter how many times I get the poop in the toilet. God wants to know, do you want to go to the toilet? Oh, man, you never thought you were going to get a spirit-filled analogy from, from the toilet, were you? Okay, and, and, and a good parent is, come on, track with me. And a good parent is not primarily proud of the results either, are they? Not a good parent. A, a good parent is proud of the pursuit of their child's motivation to honor them. That's why when the child gets a little bit on the, on the toilet seat, what do we say, you didn't do a good job, you didn't make it all the way in there, what do we do? Great job, Billy. Great job, Jason. Because what matters is that they went they went that way. They strive towards what we set before them and we said was good. Okay, so so this is true of our God as well, particularly when we draw excuse me, particularly when he draws near to us in our awkward stages of development and seasons of growth on this journey with Jesus for the rest of our lives, folks. Get this. We are his children awkwardly growing under the safe and the loving protection of his hand of grace. But brothers and sisters, when are you really going to believe that? I'm serious. When are you going to believe that? When will you actually believe that God comes alongside your sin and he comes alongside your struggles and he comes alongside your weaknesses with the sole desire to love and support you and to do it with you? 
No, he comes alongside to do it with you because he has an end goal. No, the end goal was done on the cross. I'm not, I'm not playing. No, he walks with us because he wants to get us to the, no, he finished it on the cross. Yeah, but I really do think that he walks with us to get us, you know, to get us to eternity. No, he did it on the cross. We got to get this. <laughs> so if your life is perpetually marked by feeling that God must be disappointed in you and you believe that there's no way that he could ever be happy with you, and if you're always thinking that at any moment now you're going to be exposed as the giant fraud you are because you've got all your, your problems, like if that's the kind of stuff that keeps you up late at night and that's what's going on deep in your heart all the time and you're thinking about that and you're thinking about that, I love you, brother and sister, but I want you to know that God is not surprised by your shortcomings. You need to understand that. So, so let me help you have a better solution, okay? I want to give you a solution. Here's a better way of handling that kind of weight in your heart. Say to yourself, I am a fraud. I, I, I do doubt more than I wish I did. I do wrestle more than I wish I would. I do fall short much more than I want to. Just say it. Declare it. Don't run from it. Lean into it. And, and can I just be honest? I still find your pastor, your lead pastor, lead spiritual leader, I still find in my life things that I thought were completely dead to me, things that were completely dead, gone. I'm like, I've, I'm past it. I've, I've moved on from it. Okay. But when the right set of circumstances come, um, things that I thought were long gone and dead, they flare up in me and they show themselves to sometimes be as strong as ever. Can I get a witness or all you guys pass? Maybe you guys are all super holy, but I'm telling you right now, there's things that I'm like, oh yeah, I'm done. That's three years ago. And then it shows his ugly face if the right circumstances presents itself. Okay. Okay. So, so one of my go-to responses as your pastor, one of my go-to responses to my own soul, when aggressive and unfair critique comes my way from the enemy, and, and one of my go-to responses to other people when they are suffering under the heavy weight and the unfair critique of, of other people is, is to do this. That's it? That's all you got, devil? That's all you have to say to me, brother and sister, who's talking about me right now in the church? That's it? You're calling that part of me out? Okay, well, let me tell you. Uh, let me tell you something, Satan. I'm actually far worse than what you're saying about me. Let me tell you something, brother and sister. In fact, if you come just a little bit closer and you get to know me, I'm actually far more disappointing than you actually think. You're not experiencing the full disappointment of who I can be. Try, try that one time, folks, and see how, that, how it works for you. That's how you handle that situation. You do not need to hide. You do not need to be ashamed. And you do not need to act like you're not a sinner in need of a savior. You need to declare it. I'm going to say to you again, you don't need to hide and be ashamed that you're a sinner in need of a savior. You need to declare it. You don't need an S on your chest. You need a J in your heart. You get that? You ain't got to walk around acting like you're Superman and you got all together. What you need is a J right in the middle of your, right in the middle of your chest, armored up saying, I'm a sinner, but I'm walking with Jesus and he got me. That's, that's how we walk as Christians. Listen, there are going to be some days that all you're going to be able to do is to hold on to the cross and God's grace to make it through the day and in the hour. Do you understand that, Christian? Hey, hey, look at me. Anyone else, 
pastor, book, or in between that tells you a different picture and, they, and anything else. They're outside and they're out of step with the Bible itself because no one in the Bible avoided living those kind of days where all they could do was to call upon God. Jesus was literally on the mouth saying, God, I can't do this. I don't want to do this, but help me do it. Help me walk out this final stage of my life. Anyone who tells you different, don't believe that hype. Folks, if even the Apostle Paul says things like, not that I've already obtained these things, then surely we can't put that expectation on ourselves, right? Okay, instead, as your pastor, I want you to learn to cling to Christ. Repeat after me. I need to grow in learning how to cling to Christ. That's what we need to be doing. And as we learn to cling to Christ, trusting more and more in His grace, believing upon His promises, it'll become more true for us. Are you with me? Okay, so, so here are some, some helpful ways that I believe you will be equipped to continue to walk in the witness of uh, in the witness with Jesus all the more in your life. Here it is. It's another note about this witness with us and Jesus. It's it's on your screen. Being with Jesus ultimately leads to being for him and his stuff. That's the order. And that order is what will ensure that your calling and purpose are true and your efforts are without burden. Wow, that's now that's deep. So we, we got to deal with this. Okay, so, so there's three things that are happening in this passage. We're looking at it like a diamond from so many different angles. Okay, so now let's turn it this last way in these three categories because there's three things that are happening in this passage that we've been reading in here. So here's the first one. Here's... It's on your screen. Here's one glorious redemptive opportunity we get from the passage today to transform our lenses. The first one is this. We have the redemptive opportunity of being reconciled to reconcile. We have, been, we have the opportunity of being reconciled to reconcile. And, and this means you've been brought into the reconciled presence of Jesus so that you can now help others into the presence of a reconciled relationship with Jesus as well. You see, both, it's, a, it's a both and situation. Okay, okay, so, so you know how, okay, so, so you know how we all have that one friend that one friend, and they're just a natural networker, and they're super extroverted, and and it almost feels like like they literally know every single person on the planet. You got any friends like that? And they're always connecting you to that other friend, to that other friend. They're always like, oh my gosh, like I know this one friend, and, and if you met them, you guys would just hit it off so well, and I, I want to invite you both over. Like They're always trying to get us connected. Okay, so, so that's who we all become in our witness with Christ. It makes us live in a way... In a way that we all walk with this new transformed mindset and excitement and passion that bursts out of our heart saying, hey, I want to introduce you to, to, the, to my friend Jesus. He's super awesome. He's going to blow your mind. Like, like, I mean, I got this one friend. His name is Jesus, and I spent a lot of time with him. He's amazing. Can I, can I introduce you? He's so kind and he's so generous. I really want to get you guys connected. Like, that's, that's the heartbeat. That's the energy of a Christian. Now, now brace for impact, okay? Brace for impact, because this is going to sting a little bit. Do you want to know why you may actually struggle with evangelism and to live like that? You ever thought about that? Like, 
Do you want to know why you may be currently living under the false belief that uh, you struggle with your evangelism because you have a lack of confidence or it's your communication style or a lack of skills or you don't have the experience and no one ever taught you? I always find that super crazy. No one's ever taught me. It's like, read the Bible. No one taught anyone this. But I think that's, anyways, do you, do you want to know why? Do you want to know what's probably happening if you struggle with evangelism and you think it's because of your skill sets or communication and confidence, folks? Maybe you're struggling with evangelism because you're not actually excited about Jesus yourself. That's why. Maybe you're not experiencing a palpable witness with Jesus in your own walk with the Lord. That's attractive. Like you love Jesus, but you're not excited about Jesus. You love him, but you're not excited about him. In fact, you're not excited about anything. Like if I was to ask you, are you excited about your life? What would, what would you say? And, and, and maybe it's been so long since you've been genuinely excited about anything God has done for you or anything God's doing in the world. And, and you don't have any passion and you have no stories to tell anyone. You know, I often think about my time with people and disciple them. And I'm like, I'm always bursting with stories and stories and stories because the life with Jesus is crazy and it's exhilarating and it's difficult and it produces stories and stories. And everyone I've ever experienced has stories and stories, but you won't have stories to tell if you're not walking with Jesus to step into stories. I'm just being honest. Um, folks, maybe, maybe many of you are just coasting in your own salvation and you're not walking with them. <clears throat> Have you ever wondered why some of the best evangelizers are those who come out of deep sin or prison or really tragic stories? Because I'm one of them. Let me tell you, it's not their sin that makes them effective. It's not their tragedy that makes them effective. And it's not their prison sentence that makes them effective. It's their passion and it's their belief that God is truly a God of second chances and they know what God's done for them. I'm gonna say to you again, it's not their prison sentence, it's what God did in the prison sentence. It's not their tragedy, it's what God helped them to overcome despite their tragedy. And it's most definitely not their deep sin, it's how Christ freed them from it or works through it. And their passion and their belief and the witness that they carry with them every single day is palpable and attractive. And they have no choice but to burst out of their heart with what Jesus has done for them. And every day they lived pumped up like the people that Jesus would meet in the Gospels where they would run into town, not able to withhold everything that Jesus had told them. But for so many of you long-term Christians, you forgot your first love, haven't you? And some of you never had. You've never had that excitement in the first place. Oh, I remember that one season for, excuse me, some of you have lost your first love and some of you have never had it to begin with. You've been so busy and so anchored down by a moralistic lens of Christianity, either overtly in your practice or subconsciously in your self-confidence that you can just do the right things in Scripture better than other Christians and you found your hope in that. Hello. That your dependency on Jesus hasn't broken your heart in a way that explodes you forward into a loving excitement for your life and for the opportunity to share him with others. That's what's happening for so many of us. Jesus has never broken your heart yet. 
you know, I, I've met with people and they sit there like, oh, you know, I don't really believe in all that emotional moments and people falling on their knees in the church and the altar. They're just performing. Hey, maybe, but I have a, I have a question for you. If you have not broken down to your knees, you have not wept and cried your soul out. Man, have you met thy Lord, thy God? Because all throughout the text in the Old Testament, oh, I'm preaching now, all throughout that Psalter, and all throughout those principles and proverbs, and all throughout those gospel stories, and all throughout my Christ since my Christ uh, in Bethlehem breakthrough moments, and all throughout the testimonies of all the people I've had the opportunity to walk with, Jesus will drop you down on your knees, and He will pour out tears that will fill up a bucket. And he will make you shrill and cry out and sob tunes from your voice that you didn't know you had. And brother and sister, if he has not broke you down and you have not called out, oh my God, I need you. Brother and sister, maybe you have not met Jesus yet. Because when Jesus invades your heart, he shatters all realities. And I mean it. Dependency on Jesus changes everything. And I find it so strange when I meet Christians that don't have a palpable joy and excitement that's exuberating out of their pores. Where's your energy, Christian? Because Jesus should wake you up regularly with purpose, excitement, and perspective that pulls you to want to try again and live again and rescue again. But the reality is, I'm going to keep saying it, if you're not excited from within, you can't be excited from without. If you don't have excitement in here, of course you don't exuberate excitement without. But that's a sermon for another day as we go deeper into the sermon series. Folks, can't you see we are reconciled to be exciting, purpose-filled reconcilers. But here's another thing that we get from this passage. Here it is, number two. The second glorious redemptive opportunity we get from the passage today to transform our lenses is we have the redemptive opportunity of the assurance of our identity in Christ. That's, that's huge. Okay. So to be reconciled, to reconcile lets us know that wherever we are, that's what we are to be doing. That's what we get. But what the second opportunity is communicating is that we are also a new creation. We're ambassadors. Okay. Therefore, wherever we are, excuse me, therefore, yeah, therefore, wherever we are, that is who we actually are. Okay. So let's talk about this for a minute. I, I, I'm going to help you out with this. If you're a teacher, thank you. Thank you for what you do. You are literally a gift to human flourishing. You have the amazing opportunity to sit with children and adults and to educate them so they can be better contributors to this world. And you are a huge contributor to human flourishing. But I want you to know, in all actuality, you're New Creation's ambassador of Christ. And wherever you are, you have been reconciled to reconcile. That's what you actually are as a teacher. Hey, hey, if you're a janitor, thank you. Thank you for all that you do. Because you choose to humble yourself and to clean and to make things clean and sanitary, you improve human flourishing and give us a safe place to meet for churches, 
for doctor's appointments, or to go shopping. But in actuality, you're new creation's ambassador of Christ. And wherever you are, you are that. Because you have been reconciled to reconcile. So, so if you're an entrepreneur, or you're a lawyer, or you're a handyman, or you're a doctor, or you're a police officer, or you're a veterinarian, we're so thankful for all of you. Thank you for helping our world to progress. You contribute to human flourishing. But remember, in all reality, your new creation's ambassador of Christ, wherever you are, you have been called to reconcile, to reconcile. That's who you are. So, so since you're with Jesus, wherever you are, that's what you're doing. Because if you're confused, you're like, what do you mean? Wherever you are, that's what you're doing. If, you're, if, if where you are as a teacher, what you're, what you're doing is reconciling. If where you are is in the office of the janitorial staff, that's what you're doing. You're reconciling. If that's where you are as a doctor, then that's where you are as a reconciler of the gospel of grace. That's, that's where we are. So, so yes, yes, teacher, you, 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 teaching is your goal, but it's not your end goal. Are you tracking with me? The ultimate end goal and the ultimate reality is that you're reconciling others to God, not teaching the math. No matter what your job is, that is your life focus as a Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christian. And that's supposed to, now we're going to get real, and that's supposed to compel you to stay after work longer, to get to work earlier, to use your lunch breaks, and to sacrifice time away from your family to do that mission of reconciliation. Are you tracking with me? Come on, stay focused with me right here. I'll be honest. We're living in a cultural age of Christianity filled with so many unhelpful and distracting Christian traditions uh, traditions and moralistic pursuits. And sometimes, if I'm being honest, the biggest thing that stops us from being glad ambassadors wherever we are, no matter what position we are, to be ambassadors by identity and recon- uh, reconcilers by activity is our own families. Let me say it again. Sometimes the biggest thing that stops us from being ambassadors by identity and reconcilers by activity is our own families. One more time. Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Eyes up here with your mind so clear. Listen, we love our families. And God has called us all throughout the text. We, I, I know it. I know it. I know what God says in Deuteronomy. I know we're supposed to teach and train the Tetrakis. I get that. But we learned about this in great detail in the, in the book of Ephesians. Go back to the series. It's marriage in light of eternity. It's family in light of eternity. It's, it's, it's children raising them in light of eternity. The point of the church, of our marriages, is to be an image of Christ and the bride. The point of our marriages is to paint a picture. And out of that love, we have children, and we've been called to be fruitful. But to be fruitful towards what? Our own ends? Our family traditions? No, stop it. We have been called to be fruitful to the... You've got to deal with the text in your theology. We've been called to be fruitful across these lands as reconcilers and redeemers of all things. 
But if your family becomes the end of your everything, insofar that your traditions and your family becomes the point, and you leave no room for Christ to invade the scenes and to transform everything, you literally get in the way of Christ using you to help heal the lands. Your family's not yours. They belong to God. Your marriage is not yours. It belongs to God. Your children are not yours. It belongs to God. You can't live because of whatever happened in your past. You don't live to protect your family. You give to sacrifice them. Oh, that's unpopular. I'm going to say it again. Our job is not to sit there to protect our family at all costs. It's to offer our family as a living sacrifice. Listen, when we live with our marriages and our parenting and our families in light of eternity, it changes everything, folks. Okay, so, so here's the last thing I want to cover as we prepare to land the plane. Because this, we get this one more thing in this, in this passage that helps us and, and is attached to our identity and our purpose and our calling. Here it is. It's, it's on your screen. So you and I, we have the redemptive opportunity for a joyful yet in ordered life. A joyful yet in ordered life life. Now we're going to look at a passage right now from Psalms because that Psalter really gives us a great little snapshot picture of that. So it's going to be on your screen right now. Psalms chapter 16 verse 11. And the word of the Lord says, you make known to me the path of life. Now let's just talk about that for a quick second. Like what is the path of life that's being talked about? Okay, so the path of life is basically the Bible's kind of moral vision of living so that humans can flourish. Okay, so let's read it again. Now understanding that a little bit more contextually. So you make, namely God, Jesus, you make known to me the path for how to live my life with a set of kind of morals in a way that's going to set me up to flourish. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, so for those of us who know kind of the moral vision that God lays out for human flourishing all throughout the Bible, we get into trouble right here in, in texts like this, right? Because if we're being honest, sometimes the way God's calling us to live doesn't always feel enjoyable to us. Okay, so right here in the Psalter, the answer is being given to why that is, namely why we struggle to sometimes feel like, man, I don't know if I really agree. Like, is God's, is God's prescription for life really setting me up to have that joy. Okay, folks, here, here's, what, here's what it's saying in Psalm chapter 16. It's because it's in God's presence that your joy is made complete. It's by the right hand. You see it, right? It's, it's, by, it's, in, it's by being at the right of his hand or being with Jesus, that concept we're talking about today, that we experience pleasures that are never-ending or are forevermore, as the text says it. Okay, that's another example, folks, of the difference between the moral lens versus the redemptive lens that I'm trying to create these categories for. And this concept of changing our lenses to a redemptive one that we're having today is going to be such an important backdrop when we explore relationships, forgiveness, giving, and so many other things throughout this sermon series. Because if we approach any of the subjects... Anything, this love, marriage, giving, for forgiveness. If we approach any subject from the lens of a moral lens perspective, we're going to be divided in our heart because we're going to get stuck between what we were taught traditionally, 
what God is actually saying in Scripture and then, we'll, and then what we feel we have to do in light of it. Let me say to you again, the reason why we get so, so much in forgiveness categories or how to give categories or whatever the subject may be is because we get stick in what we've been taught traditionally. That could have been from your family. It could have been a tradition. It could have been a church tradition. So you got a traditionalized approach to certain things you're doing. You have what the Bible actually says as we start to really unpack verse by verse, line by line, letting the word speak for itself. And then you have what you feel you have to do in light of the pull between your traditions, what God is actually saying, and what that now means for you in your heart. Okay, but the redemptive lens is going to be the safe waters that will all ultimately help to heal all of that so you can live freely and not under that prism of thinking. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, so we have this path of life being talked about here in the Psalter laid before us. And in His presence, God's presence, we have the opportunity for joy and pleasures forevermore. But folks, this empowerment to live for Jesus and to walk this path of life is conditional on whether we've been with Jesus. Are you with me? If he's not with us, we won't make it. If he's not with us, it's not, we don't get the joy and the pleasures that are forever more. Okay, so if you take away Jesus and, and you don't actually have his presence in your life as your joy, and let me tell you, all you're left with on this path of life is fear, losses, expectations that are not being met, and for some of us, an attachment to God being harsh towards us about it. You lose the literally the earthly pleasures without replacing the eternal treasures, and that's called a void. I want to unpack that for a second. So many Christians are walking around with what I call the devastating void of the middle ground. And what I mean is you're denying yourself and you're denying yourself and you're denying yourself and you're denying yourself of this and that and that according to the text, according to the Bible from a moral lens perspective, changing the behaviors because it says it in the Bible, but you have no access to the gifts, the gifts, the gifts, the gifts that come with Jesus. And so you're losing all these earthly things. You're not gaining heavenly things. That's a void, folks. Everything that God is calling you to put down, he supplies something infinitely greater. As Christians, we don't live with the devastating void, but some of us, some of us do. So yeah, you, you most definitely may be struggling with your joy and your contentment as you walk with Jesus. But I want you to know it's not because Jesus hasn't provided and promised things to you. It's because maybe you're not walking with Jesus. And so you're losing things and you're not, you're not gaining things. And, and, and that lack of eternal pleasures and that lack of being with him at the right hand, it's affecting your ability to joyfully follow him. And I want you to know that today. So, so my job as the pastor of this church, is to provide as many opportunities as I can for you to be with Jesus. Are you tracking now? So, so when you're prioritizing that calendar and you pull out that phone and you're making decisions about how you're going to order your steps and your weeks and your years, remember that church gatherings, first and foremost, are not events. They're opportunities. They're opportunities for you to practice being with Jesus, practicing being in the presence of him. 
And that's, that's good news. That's how you're able to now, if you think about it with redemptive blends, that's how you negotiate your time away from that beach house or that family time, uh, that, that rhythm that is so unbreakable that Christ can't speak into it when you're joining in to what's going on in the context of a covenant family in the local church. Because when you're with Jesus, all of a sudden those, neg- those negotiations you're having in your heart sound different. However, the moral lens will haunt you from both sides of the equation with what we're talking about right right now. And let me show you. Let me show you how it haunts you from from category A and then how it can also haunt you in category B. Here's category A. Category A, because it will haunt you this way. You will feel a moral obligation to put your family first and to make sure that, that you guys are having all the quality time you need and, and maybe you got some wounds in your past and you want to be a better dad and you want to be a better mom, you want a better marriage, you want a better family. And so you're, 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 you're stressed about that. You're, you got anxiety about that. You want so hard to do it the right way. You got traditions, including Christian traditions that, that are not even aligned with the Bible, but you're living and serving them as a slave. And you're like, man, this is the idea of what God calls a Christian family to do, and so you're being motivated by that. Okay, but but that whole picture of the, the husband and the wife and the kids, and we're doing every single thing, and devotions every Friday night, and every Thursday night, and every Wednesday night, and we have no room for anything else, that's a moral situation, and God's not after that. Instead, he wants something different, something much more deeper at the heart level, because maybe from a redemptive lens point of view, have you ever thought about this? Maybe from a redemptive point of view, like a biblical one, like read your Bible kind, maybe quality time with husband, wife, and child is being together on mission with your church. You ever thought about that? And maybe maybe in God's redeemed economy, uh, quality time is being together with your husband and wife and kids serving in Mexico or just modestly showing up on a Saturday to clean the church's bathrooms so they can smell better for those who are coming in to meet Jesus. But, but that's not everybody, right? That may be your struggle. But then people struggle in category B because for others of us, you actually do feel a moral obligation to put in those long hours at the church and to serve correctly, right? It's the right Christian thing to do because after all, we need to prove and show and demonstrate that we're very serious about our God. And so that may be what's pulling and motivating you. But folks, that's equally a moral situation that our God is not after in the same. Instead, he wants something different from you at the heart level. Like, can't you see living to do the right moral thing as your reason for attending and serving and everything else, that's going to kill you. That's yucky. And it's not going to satisfy your soul. It's going to make you tired and defensive all the time. So, so both categories, we got a problem here. Like, like either you're not leaning into your church and you're lifting up your family first, thinking it's the biblical, faithful thing to do, but it's not, and it's a traditionary reality. It's coming out of a pain point in your past, and you're protecting and guarding it. But I got news for you. Your family, your main job as a family unit isn't to protect each other and to protect yourself. It's to offer your family as a living sacrifice. Oh, I'm going to say it again. The main construction of the family unit is not to protect itself as if your family is the end goal and your life and your harmony and your dreams together is the goal. It's to take your family and little Tejikis to train them in the ways of the Lord and to come and offer your family as a living sacrifice, as ambassadors of Christ to help heal the world. So you got a category. Okay, let's make it practical. Husband and wife, are you right now living 
sacrificing, giving, and training your children to use their life to literally be ambassadors by identity and reconcilers by activity? If the answer is no, I got news for you. The Bible is screaming to go the different direction. But in category B, we got a problem. If you're doing all the ritual Christian things, but it's robbed of being with Jesus, what do you have? Question for you, husband, wife. Are you raising your children to have a relationship where they practice being in the presence of Jesus or just doing all the inner workings of church culture? That's equally a dangerous picture. Okay, but the, but the redemptive lens of Scripture, praise Christ, lifts above all of our family traditions and our church traditions and our rules and our boundaries and puts Jesus squarely in the center of it all, in the center of our heart with love being the driving force. So it pulls the family in category A because of their love for what Jesus has done for them. The dad didn't forget. The mom didn't forget. And they're telling their children, don't forget. And that love pulls them into the church in ways that are completely and categorically away from what they would normally do in and of themselves. That's what Jesus looks like when he takes over your heart. He comes in there and he changes things up and he flips it upside down and he pulls that family radically into the church more than they ever could. But then that same driving force of love frees up the family in category B to take a exhale and to rest and to actually not miss Jesus going all around the very things that they're doing. Oh man, in a, in a very real way, Every Sunday morning that we gather is an exercise of properly learning how to practice being in the presence of our King Jesus. Like when we're singing and praying and worshiping and hearing the word preached and we're giving our finances, we're being reminded of the ultimate story of reality of God and our part in it. And in that experience, God is lining us back up, reminding us of our intended design and how we're supposed to love which then compels how we live and leads to how we thrive. Are you getting that? It's how we love God out of that response dictates how we live, not morality. Our love compels us to live a certain way. As we live that way, we then thrive. That, that's deep water, bro. I got you in, in this series. Now, as I land the plane today, I want to talk to those of you right now that have grown up your, your whole life in church. Or for 15 to 16 years, you've been deepening out with God. You have all kinds of traditions. You get, you get your family traditions. You've started your own traditions. You have a deep church background. And, and I'm going to say it, a deep orientation to the moral lens. Now, now, if you're not in this category, you're like, you're a wanderer, you're a seeker. You're like, oh, I guess my sermon's over. No, 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 no. I want to help you to avoid this trajectory. But I want to primarily focus right now, I'm talking to you right now, long-term church-going man or woman filled with traditions and BBSs and Awanas and structures. And I'm hoping with all my heart that some of you are going to be self-aware enough to know that this really is you today. And I can only pray that you're not dismissing yourself and excusing yourself from this equation and robbing yourself of a life-changing opportunity, okay? Because the reality is this could be overwhelming. And I know that. Here, your pastor. I can, this could be so discombobulating to step into a, a reality, a spirit-filled reality, where everything that you've been living and everything you've been standing on and girthing your confidence in is being blown up. That can be scary. 
Because, because on one hand, uh, you hear me saying that, that morals absolutely do matter, but on the other hand, you hear me clearly preaching today that morals are 100% not the point. And I mean that categorically. And even if you've known these truths at the head level since your VBS Awana days, I hope you're, I hope you're really going to be able to be honest with yourself about how much this may be a struggle for you. Are you tracking with me? Okay, let me, Holy Spirit, help me. So to those of us who are open and humble enough today as student learners, glad participators in this sermon, and you're thinking, okay, Pastor Brennan, I need to step into this. Like, like how does this whole thing work? Like, like how do I avoid, move out of a relationship where it's just not just about avoiding the wrong things and, and doing the right things? How do I move into practicing the presence of God? Because right now, Christianity for me is to stop doing porn and to stop doing drugs and to stop drinking and to stop having sex and to, you know, do all the right things. But, I, but I'm saying I want to move into an actual vibrant relationship with God. I want to be excited about it. I want passion for Jesus. And I don't want to just live a transactional, moralistic life. Okay, okay. Or, or maybe your moral lens of the version, you think, that's not me, that's not me, I got you. Maybe if that's not your moral lens of the version, maybe if this is you saying, okay, but, but for me too, Pastor Brandon, I, I, I want to step into this thing. I, I want to stop falling into the, the, the trap season after season, season where I'm utterly defeated all the time because of my own insufficiencies and my lack of measuring up to uh, my own standard. Uh, wait. That's not my standard. God tells me clearly in 2 Timothy how to be the man. He tells me not to. No, no, your own. It's, it's right. Your own standards of being a godly husband, your own standards of being a godly wife, leader, father, whatever it is. I'm being drowned and I'm being robbed of the joy that's been set before me at the cross of Christ because of my own insufficiencies and my lack. Are you ready for this? And my lack of accepting the cross. You, oh, that's going to hit somebody in the heart today. I want to grow past my inability to actually accept the cross in a way that transforms my life relationally and energetically. That's what you're, that's what you're really saying. So if that's you on either side of this equation, if there's anyone here today that is willing to just say, I want to tap out tap out. And I want to learn how to exercise that witness with Jesus in a way that I haven't done in my life. I want to learn how to live joyfully with Jesus. If that's you, listen, for the rest of the story in the Bible about the fall and everything that talks about Christ is coming, I want you to know that all of it, all of the Bible is a story about God meeting people right where you're at, okay? It's okay. Right here in this question, the Bible intersects. Namely, how can I live joyfully and, and freely through my brokenness with the practice and the presence of God in my life? How can I live with God in a way where he completes me and satisfies me, where I feel his satisfaction forevermore? So whether we're in the book of Proverbs on a Sunday or we're in the redemptive Christianity series on a different Sunday, in both, I want you to start just looking for opportunities to practice being in the presence of Jesus, right? Like approach these sermons and approach life and, and just start to have these different categories that you, can, that you can lift up and say, okay, like how am I thinking and how am I living and, and what does God's word say and, and start to just do, do that work, folks, and don't do it alone. Let's, let's do it in community. Like let's begin 
going to prepare our hearts for a redemptive life and not just a life of moral Christianity and, and Christian traditions. Like, it won't save you and it won't give you joy. Okay, so now, throughout this redemptive Christianity series specifically, we're actually going to be learning about this, and I'm going to try my best in Christ to lead you through this. And so we're going to have about eight to nine sermons in this series where we look at things and we lift them up and we kind of say, okay, what, what does God actually say about this, this subject matter? Like, we, not, we understand the tradition of what we may have learned in church. We, we may have been doing or practicing, practicing this in a certain way, but what does God's Word say about this subject? And then we're going we're gonna to lift it up and we're going to say, now, now how do I move into this being driven and compelled by love to get all that God has for me in this subject. Okay, so, so right now on your screen, uh, in no particular order, I'm going to present these eight or nine sermons we're going to be going through. Okay, so here it is. It's on your screen. We're going to be looking at redemptive Sabbath. Repeat after me, redemptive Sabbath. Okay, and we're going to look at that as we practice being with Jesus. Like, I'm not just talking about doing Sabbath, like, oh, oh yeah, like, yeah, I need to put some time to the side and I need to rest. It's really important to fuel. Like, folks, I don't think we get it. So much of what we do is being influenced by culture. Sabbath is not taking a day off of work. It's not just going to the forest and, 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 and thinking about your life. It's a biblical Sabbath. There's something happening. It's different. And it happens with Jesus. Like, I don't know about you, but I want to step into that in my life. How do I redeem my Sabbath experience? Or how do I step into Sabbath for the first time with a redemptive lens to start off my relationship with Jesus the right way? Another sermon we're going to be learning about is, is going to be around the redemptive role of the scriptures. Repeat after me, the redemptive role of the scriptures. Like, I'm not talking about just the next devotion and the next thing you just do when you wake up with your rhythm, but literally, fundamentally, like, what is the role of scripture? And, and you may be thinking, oh, I, I know that answer. Uh, it, 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 the scripture tells us how to be more like Jesus. Remember in Ephesians chapter 5, and so we, we learn, like, what to do and what not to No, 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 no. Like, what is the actual intentions of the word of God for your life? And then, remember, how do we then talk about it from a place where it's we're being driven by love, compelled by love in how we come to the Word of God? So, so what's the role of Scripture? How do we approach the Scriptures with love as we practice being with Jesus in that experience? And that makes it different. The, another sermon we're going to be um, camping out on is the redemptive purpose of silence and solitude when we're praying and we're experiencing that space. And, and, and this is going to be a really important one for so many of us, right, who struggle terribly with prayer and silence and solitude. Like some of us have no silence category or solitude. But again, I'm not talking about yoga. I'm not talking about your silent retreats. I'm not talking about going hiking. I'm talking where you have your self, you know, awareness moments or, or when you have these intellectual ascents into when like, oh, yeah, I have this feeling now about what I'm supposed to do. No, like what does it mean from a biblical perspective for us to retreat to a place of solitude, spirit-filled solitude, a place of silence where you're actually fully focused on Jesus everywhere and all the time and you're practicing being in his presence in a way where you walk away different. Oh man, another one's going to be on redemptive fasting. Everybody say redemptive fasting redemptive fasting as we practice being with jesus okay so i mean can, can, can i just 
How many of you have ever fasted in a way that's literally changed your life and sent you on a different trajectory? It's okay to be on it. Christians, the first thing we're going to have to do in this series is to tap out a performance and to say, that's me, Pastor Brandon. That's me, brother. I, I, I haven't done it. I, I, I've never fasted in a way that compels me and drives me forward with love to want to do that on a regular basis. Here's a test. Have you ever fasted without being asked to by your church? I'm, I'm, this, is not, this is not rhetorical. Say it out loud. Have you ever fasted without being told to do it from someone in your church? Yes or no? Okay, second part. When you fasted, whether it was on your own or with the church, did you experience transformation? Okay, we need to look at that from a redemptive lens perspective. It's not a moral obligation. It's an opportunity when being driven by love that compels you to do something that sends you into more joy, more opportunity, more of God's presence. We got to practice that, but we got to look at it first and see what God has to say about it. Here's another one. Redemptive generosity. Everybody say redemptive generosity. Oh yeah. It's not about giving 10%. It's not about how much you give. It's not about how least you give. It's about being driven by a love in Jesus that compels you to want to bless others. It's not about your, oh, I have my system and my categories of giving. No, your system and categories need to die. And, and then Christ, Christ's heart, Christ's narrative of giving and generosity needs to lift and resurrect out of the ashes of your soul. So that you give like Jesus, but not because you have to, but because love drives you. So what does that how do, what does it mean for God's love to drive me to just give, 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 give? We're gonna look at that as we practice the presence of Jesus. This series is gonna be different. Now, the next one is gonna be, we're not done. The re, uh, redemptive service. Everybody say redemptive service. Oh, you better believe it. This is going to be a pain point for some people who either are on the camp A, who, who don't like serving, or you don't think you have time to serve, or you don't have the capacity to serve, or you have all your constructions that are robbing you of the joy that God has set before you, or in category B, those of you who are serving like a slave who has no joy, but is doing it out of what you're supposed to do because it's what, you, oh man, there's so many Christians that are doing that because they were raised by their mom and then their grandpa, pa, and it's, you go to church, you go Sunday, you serve, you do this. It's like, what's happening in your heart? We're going to practice being in the presence of Jesus about redemptive service that actually fills you up and not leaves you drained. And then we're going to talk about redemptive community. Everybody say redemptive community. Oh man, what does it look like when the people of God step into a type of community that literally becomes your family? A family that you would die for, that you would give to, that, uh, uh, that you would defend, that you would love, that you would weep with, that you would mourn with, that you would trust with the things you care about most, your heart, your life, your family, your money, that kind of spirit-filled family. But how do you do that? by practicing being with Jesus. If you take Jesus out of it, we're a club at best. We're friends at most. 
with Jesus, we literally become a family. But we're going to stop using that churchy word family until we are willing to step into the full weight of God, what God is saying in the text. And we're going to explore that. And then finally, but not in this order, we're going to be looking at redemptive repentance. Say redemptive repentance. And I am personally so excited about this because repentance, folks, is not a place of shame and it's not a place of guilt and it's not a place of, of, of where you are swallowed up by all of your fragilities. It's a place of power. It's a, it's a place of purpose. And it's a, it's a place of trajectory changing where you get to step with confidence into the next thing. That's all it is. Repentance is stepping into the next thing that God has for you. And it's about stepping away from the, 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 the last thing that was hindering you, but not hindering you from what you want, hindering from what get from you, hindering you from where you want to be. That's what repentance is. And spirit-filled, redemptive repentance is not alone. It's not an isolating thing. It's a community-driven thing. It's a brother and sister knows about me at a radical level and joins me in it type of thing. And when you look at redemptive repentance, it'll become a life song of joy in your heart if you practice doing it with Jesus as your center man and so if you're thinking right now you know what pastor brandon this series doesn't seem very exciting it's very basic i mean you're talking about sabbath and start fasting i mean it just seems basic i learned this back in vbs in awana when i was nine years old okay i just want to lovingly and gently um, steer you away from that closed off mindset because each and every one of these sermons if you want them to be we you will have an opportunity to juxtapose what you're currently doing in your life what God says about it and what you want to do in light of that reality. But as you approach this conundrum of what God says and what you've done because of what you want to do, because of what you've been taught to do, because of what your family traditions are, and when God's work collides and it gets scary, remember, in this series, we're going to be ever so careful to put on redemptive lenses with Christ in the middle, a redemptive perspective, driven by love, not by anything else. So you have the power you need to be a passionate, exciting, excited Christian in your life. No more dead soul, right? If that's you, and you want to step into that, I want you to pray with me. But I want you to, I want you to stand right now. I want you to stand not because it's some, some your standing doesn't give you more power. You're, you're, I guarantee you, your standing won't give you more power. Your standard won't move you out of moral to redemptive. But what it, what it is, it's a step, right? It's a step of allegiance. It's, a, it's you standing with me and it's me standing with you. And it's us saying, we want this. We want this. We're leaning into this. And so stand with me. Let's pray. Whether it's Proverbs or Redemptive Christianity series, we want God in the middle. We want to be driven by love moving forward in our lives. So so let's stand and let's pray. And let's invite God into this. Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord. Come into our midst, God. We need you, God. Lord, we've been spending almost three hours talking about you and talking about this category, Lord, of what happens when Jesus comes on the scene. Lord, all throughout the Gospels, Lord, when Jesus encounters people, their lives flip upside down. And whatever happens, God, they can't hold it in. They run into the city even when you tell them not to. And they're like, I got to tell everyone 
what you've done. But, but Lord, there's so many of your people listening right now. They either haven't felt that in years or they have no category of ever being compelled where they literally can't stop talking about you to anyone and everyone who will listen. Lord, there are people listening today who have no category for walking in a way where they don't care about what people say or think, no matter what their past is, because they're driven by the love of Christ and they're free. So Holy Spirit, this is a love letter as me as a pastor and a vessel representing the people of this church and those who are listening across multiple state lines. And we're leaning into you, not to start our next behavior stuff, not to go read a, another book from the store to supplement this sermon, but to wait with a ready and a steady heart that says, I'm ready, God. I'm ready to step into my story. I'm ready to step into the full weight of who you've called me to be, but I want to do it differently. I'm sick and tired of doing Christianity. I'm sick and tired of performing religion, and I want a relationship. No more transactions. Joy, the joy that's set before me. And so, Lord, Lord, if anyone, Lord, who, who has that prayer on their heart, I pray that you would give them an assurance that only you can, that tomorrow can be different, and that they would come with great anticipation of every time we step into the next category of this series, not because of the perfection of my preaching, but, but because of the perfection of your word and the perfection of the Holy Spirit's ability to save us, God. And so if there's anyone here that, that this is true of, I just want you to raise your hand. Raise your hand and just, and just tell the Lord, I, I, I want to experience revival. you got to say it out loud. you got to mean it. But you don't say it because you're supposed to. You say it because you want it. And don't you dare say it if you're not ready to say it today, Christian. But for those who are ready to say, I want revival. Say, I, I want you, Jesus, above the gifts. Say it. Say, say, I want you, Jesus, above the means. Say, say, I want you above my traditions. Say it if you mean it. Say the parts you mean. And if you don't mean it, Christians, this is day one. Stop saying what you don't want. For those of you who believe it, say, say, I want you above my traditions. Say, 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 I want you above my family narratives. Say, 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 I want you above my money. Say, I want you above anything, Lord, anything that separates us from you. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come. Come into our midst. Do something so different, so extraordinary, that it would be clear that you've touched Redemption City Church. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Grace and peace. Let's do this.